ago as we record this late December 2014 cameras stopped rolling in what was hoped would be a pilot film for a new science fiction series called Star Trek sadly it didn't work out and the cage as that episode was subtitled could have been the end of the road as far as the show was concerned fortunately the network NBC saw something they liked in that rejected pilot and ordered another something unheard of in TV at that time Creator and producer Gene Roddenberry was hit with a problem when his star, Jeffrey Hunter, did not wish to return for the show's second pilot. And instead of simply recasting the role, as numerous other shows had and would do, he created a new character. And thus, Captain James T. Kirk took command from Captain Christopher Pike. This gave the impression that Star Trek had a history to its stories, especially when the cage's footage was recycled for an episode of the series. And ever since then, the fans have been quite obsessed with making Trek seem like a cohesive universe. To that end, it seemed quite logical that some fans would want to see the story where Pike stepped down and Kirk took over, as it was unlikely that that would ever happen on the show, not only because Star Trek was always concerned with giving us new experiences and looking forward, but also due to the untimely death of actor Jeffrey Hunter. It therefore seemed natural to tell this story in a novel or a comic book. Little did we know that we'd get both, barely a year apart. The comic version was published in... Star Trek Annual Number 1 by DC Comics back in July 25th, 1985, with the untold tale of Kirk's first mission as Captain of the Enterprise, entitled All Those Years Ago. Now, I've said before on this show that if you were to watch the first episode of Star Trek to feature Captain Kirk, the aforementioned second pilot where no man has gone before, there is plenty of dialogue for the viewer to conclude that this was clearly not Kirk's first mission as Captain. Depending on which side of the fence you fall on, there is even the possibility that the Enterprise was not Kirk's first command. Writer Mike W. Barr, who at this point was writing DC's Trek Monthly, clearly agreed. Before we get into the main topic of discussion for tonight's episode, however, I am joined by fellow Trek fan and podcasting buddy Mr. Chris Franklin, host of Supermates with his wife Cindy and co-host of the Power Records podcast with Rob Kelly. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. How are you? Um, tickety boo, it's lovely to have you here. Not have you, obviously. Anyway. <laughs> I'll shut up now. <laughs> it's great to be here. Good. I'm I'm glad you could make it at this ridiculous hour of the morning. Oh, it's 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 not too it's not too ridiculous. But over Christmas break, slightly ridiculous, but not too ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, if you were rushing out to work, this wouldn't be that bad, would it? Oh, I'd much rather do this than work. You know. Well, that's just common sense. <laughs> Why can't we get paid for this? You know. Yes. Where's the checks? Why are they not rolling in? I was told this was a lucrative form of entertainment. At least you guys are on the DeBonzo payroll, right? I mean... <laughs> payroll, you do amuse me. <laughs> it's like Star Trek, nobody gets money, right? Nobody gets money, depending on which version of Star Trek you watch. Now, when I, I invited Chris on, I did have a spurious reason for inviting him. We're going to talk about the two Star Trek annuals that bookend the series. But basically, I just wanted Chris on to talk about Star Trek with him. Um I don't know if you're exactly the same as I am. My personal opinion is that Trek begins and ends with those original 79 episodes. It's not 
that I don't like anything that came afterwards, I do. But I think after that original show, those two words, Star Trek, took on a different meaning. Whereas in the original, they were just concerned with doing a good show. They weren't interested in enhancing anyone's legacy or believing their own publicity or anything like that. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I would agree. I, I mean, I'm definitely, I, I've definitely come to the conclusion that what Roddenberry envisioned as Star Trek changed from the moment he first started filming to, you know, like when TMP came out um, and, and the next generation. So as much as I love the classic crew era movies, I would agree that the, that the original Trek is kind of its own thing. I mean, so yeah, I think you've, I think you've made a really good point there. Um, I, I, I'm pretty much a classic Trek guy. I mean, I, I watched the other series, uh, but uh, yeah, it kind of begins and ends with with Trek, the the actual series. Yeah, for me, it's it's there's something about it's those actors and those writers at that time doing that show mm-hmm. that none of the others really managed to capture. And it's not just the aging of the actors, and it's not just the changing of the actors. It's I mean, Rick Berman said nobody wants to be the guy that messed up Star Trek. Right. And I think there's a, certain, there's a certain element of playing it safe that came into the later ones, where some of the original episodes, they're just batshit crazy in a <laughs> yeah. lot of cases. I mean, they never, you know, they never kill off a regular like Game of Thrones does on a regular basis. Right. But certainly some of the, the storytelling that they, that they did, the, some of the stories that they told were very off the wall for television at the time. Right. I, I think part of it was, I think uh, some of the, because they had science fiction, you know, luminaries writing the show, and they, they, they also wrote episodes of anthology shows like Twilight Zone and Outer Limits. Star Trek was, was in a way like those shows, but with a regular cast. So, mm-hmm. so they saw those, and a lot of times they would adapt uh, stories that they had actually sold to uh like Robert Block had actually sold the the uh, the Jack the Ripper story, what was it, to the Outer Limits as well, and he, he just kind of changed it for Star Trek. So, um, you know, I think that's part of why it does have that kind of freewheeling feel to it, is is that, you know, you, like you said, you couldn't kill off the regulars, but you could do things like in that one, you could have Scotty, like, supposedly murder a woman and things like that. I mean, you could, it was kind of more, you know, I mean, and in the way the series was, if they had killed Scotty off in that episode, I mean, now we'd be shocked. But back then, we'd be like, "Oh, well, they killed that guy off that's on there sometimes," you know. <laughs> so, I mean, it had it did have that kind of of uh, you know, you've got your three main actors and and anything else is you know open season type feel to it. Yeah. Well, one of the things we're going to discuss today is Star Trek Annual Number One, which I've already mentioned in the introduction. Star Trek Annual Number One takes its cues very much from the original pilot, The Cage. And Mm -hmm. the other thing we're going to discuss is annual number two. Now, I've already talked about annual number two on my other show, Hey Kids Comics with Michael. But when I was just chatting with Chris and I put the the word out that I was interested in doing this with him and I invited him on the show and he graciously accepted, uh, I got to say, well, I I want to cover Star Trek annual number one because I think it's brilliant. But annual number two is an excellent bookend to this. And I asked you what you thought of it. And you said, oh, I've never read that. Yeah. Oh, well, we're definitely covering it then. (laughs) Um, But both of them go back to the cage. Now, 
I think The Cage is one of the best episodes they ever did. The only reason The Cage didn't make my previous episode of this show's top 10 is I had envisioned maybe doing an entire episode about it at some point. But I can throw that out the window if we end up talking about it for a long time. I think Gene Hendricks and Scott Gardner recently did an episode of one of Gene's shows. Forgive me, Gene, I forget which one, but you do about 80 of them, uh, about Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah. It was a really, really good show. Did you hear that? Yes, I did. It was a, it was an strikes, excellent episode. Yeah. Was it, was it, was, I'm a podcast. Thank Hammer you very much. Podcast, yeah. um, I love Star Trek The Motion Picture. Now, I know I'm in a distinct minority, <laughs> but I think that it's the only film of the series that is a film. Mm. and it's the only one that is a proper science fiction film as well. But it also has an awful lot of the themes and ideas that were introduced in The Cage. Mm -hmm. And The Cage, I think, is a brilliant telefilm. I think it's a brilliant film in and of itself. It bears a startling similarity to Forbidden Planet, more so than the series that followed, but in its tone and its and how seriously it's taking the subject matter and how the actors are treating the material. But I, th- I think The Cage is, is one of the finest telefilms ever made. Um, what do you think about it? I think so, too. I, I think, uh, I think if, you, if they had just made The Cage and they had aired it on television uh, and for whatever reason it, you know, it didn't garner enough ratings to go to series, I think it would have been one of those... Uh, things that everybody's like, did you ever see The Cage? Did you see The Cage? It would have had a cult following of its own. And, yeah, I think it would have been one of those telly movies like V. Yeah, or Salem's Lot or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that, that, that's got a, that's gone on to, you know, be this, like, I can't believe this was on television. You know, this was really, this was a theatrical level production and quality that, that you just didn't see on TV, and most movies weren't this good, you know, and, and it would be... Uh, very well regarded and, and, you know, I'd be on, it, it would constantly be being reissued with, you know, on, on DVD and then Blu-ray and, you know, it'd be this like little hidden, this hidden gem that kind of everybody knows about, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a cult favorite. I think, I think it, without any other Star Trek, I think it would be. Mm, I think it, I think it's a, a brilliant piece of movie making, to be honest with you. And one of the things I do like about it is Jeffrey Hunter as Christopher Pike. Mm-hmm. And I have I have this fascination with Pike and his crew more than than arguably Kirk and his crew because we got a lot of adventures with Kirk and Kirk. We got a lot of books. We got a lot of comics. Mm-hmm. For a long time, all we had of Pike was the Menagerie before we even saw the Cage. Right. Um, I mean, I've read a couple of Pike centric novels. The Vulcan's Glory by DC Fontana. I remember being very good but I've not read it since I was in high school. I've never read any Star Trek The Early Adventures, but one of the criticisms I hear about The Cage is that Pike's quite an unlikable character throughout it. He's very stern. But mm-hmm. to me, that's his character arc in that movie. He yeah. starts off, they've just come out of a mission. It was a bad mission. Spock's limping. He's lost a good number of crew, and he's took it very personally. And the whole point of the story, the arc for the character in that movie, is to get him to the point where, at the end of the episode, he's, he's re-envisioned, re-envisioned, he's re-energised, he's back in centre seat, and he knows exactly what he wants, and it's to stay in Starfleet and explore strange new worlds. And I think that the Pike that you would have got had it gone to series would not have been the Pike of the pilot movie. Right, right. Yeah, I, you know, and I, I think, I, although I do, I do kind of like, I kind of like Pike having a little bit of an edge to him, you know, because 
that separates us from the separates him from the Kirk we know. And you know, it it, it just kind of it, it, I kind of like that he's got this kind of a little bit of seething anger beneath. I mean, it, it you know, uh, Hunter brought a lot of depth to the character in you know the short amount of time he had. I mean, you kind of felt that you felt all the missions, all the build up, all the the weariness he had from the life he'd led. I mean, and that you know, in those just few scenes, especially when he's talking to the doctor, um, and you know, I'm sure he would have been a lot more. Uh, can you hear my dog drinking water? Oh, I'm, not, I'm not worried oh, about dog. your dog. Okay. If your dog wants to join in, let him. <laughs> okay, but I think you know if if the series had gone on, I think you're right. I think he would have mellowed out some because you know he had he was. We caught him at a really bad point, uh, obviously in the at the beginning of this, and then then the the all the mess he went through with the Telosians. Uh, but I, I kind of would have hoped he, he kept a little bit of that because I, I liked it. I, find, I found it uh, interesting, and maybe I wouldn't have if I didn't have Kirk to compare it to, but I, I still think I would have liked him as a character because, you know, I mean, we all, you know, get everybody gets frustrated, and we all feel like we've got a duty to do something even if we sometimes don't want to, and and I kind of I kind of liked that. It was kind of, it was a probably pretty... A pretty bold move, you know. Most of your your heroes at the time were gung ho and you know never wavered, and and Pike was very human, you know, and and uh, which is good if you're going to explore the human condition through science fiction. You need human characters. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine other characters in mid sixties television, like say I don't know Bonanza was Bonanza on the air in sixty four, yeah, sixty five, yeah. and, yeah. and that kind of thing. It's hard to imagine those characters having a crisis of confidence right? in the same way that Pike does in that. And it's Pike's movie. The, yeah. the story is about him. You don't really learn a lot about Number One or Spark or any of the other characters or Dr. Boyce in, um, in the – or is it Piper? No, Piper's in Where No Man Has Gone Before, yeah, isn't it's, it? It's Boyce, yeah. I'm mixing up my doctors. <laughs> uh, you don't learn a lot about any of them. Because that's not the point. That's what the series that followed would be. And there's a part of me somewhere would love to go to the alternate dimension where that film got picked up and see what happened. Did it become what it became ultimately? Or was it a 13-episode wonder that is still fondly remembered today as being pretty damn good, but unfortunately it didn't do anything? Was it, was it the mixture of those actors and those creators at that time that created what it was or would it have been as successful with Jeffrey Hunter in it? Right. Yeah, it's, it'd be interesting to see. And, and, you know, I read something recently. I forgot where I read it. I had never quite read this before, but that Leonard Nimoy actually, um, the one reason why he's a little more cheerful as Spock, partially because he just hadn't developed the character yet, but also to counterbalance Jeffrey Hunter's intensity. Mm. Uh, so it'd been interesting to see if the series progressed from here if we would have solved, seen the true Spock that we know emerge, or would he have stayed kind of that G-Wow kind of almost junior member of the crew that he seems to be in, in, in this one? He's like, he seems like he's like 15 years younger, which is one reason why it works out in the menagerie. Yeah, <laughs> it works out. It does work out really well when they when they cut it up together and stick it into the menagerie. Yeah. Of course, one of the smartest decisions Roddenberry made when he recast was not giving him the same name. So we don't have that situation that you have with Cagney and Lacey where there's two other actresses playing Christine Cagney before you even get to Sharon Glass. Right. 
so giving them giving him a different name as well gave the show a history before it even began. Right. So by the time you get to the menagerie, if you're watching that for the first time in 1966 and you don't know the, the, all of the backstory, which presumably you wouldn't at that point, it looks like they made the menagerie a really expensive episode. Right. It looks like they redressed the set and they hired a whole new bunch of actors and somehow they managed to de-age Leonard Nimoy. I bet they were dead impressed with those makeup effects. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that when I first saw the, the Menagerie. I mean, I had no idea that this had been filmed. I, I hadn't read uh, anything in Starlog or... I don't think I was reading Starlog then. I, I, I didn't know. I, I assumed, just like you said, that they... That they, you know, took the sets and and either built a new Enterprise set, which is probably what I thought back then. I didn't know that they redressed <laughs> sets, but uh, you know, and and uh, like you know, made up people different and and hired Jeffrey Hunter, who I didn't know from Adam back then. But uh, I, you know, I think my dad walked in and was like, "Oh yeah, Jeffrey Hunter, you know, the Searchers, yeah, <laughs> King of Kings." I'm like, "Oh okay. yeah, he was he was he had quite a good career before he did uh, he did Star Trek." It's a shame he didn't live long enough to see what it became. Right. Because it would be interesting to see if he, he did a turnaround on it, like a lot of actors do when they realise, well, it's better to be remembered for something. Yeah. And he'd had quite a good career before he did this. Yeah. A lot of times with actors who get typecast and bothered by it, it's, they did that and then the career ground to a halt. Right. So it's not like he only ever did Star Trek. So I think it's it's a shame he never got to, to see him perhaps come back. Right. That would maybe in nice. one of the movies. Yeah, maybe yeah. he could have been the Admiral of Starfleet instead of the motion picture. Right. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, or, but, or you know, a Next Generation episode or yeah. or something like that. You know, would uh, have been, I think it would have been great to see Pike again and, and to see Jeffrey Hunter again. But sadly, uh, he died in the late 1969, I think. So he never he never even got to see the original show become this, this thing, what it did. So if, as far as he is concerned, it's just a minor footnote in his career. Right. Right. Uh, he played Jesus, you know, so I mean. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's nowhere to go but down after that, though. Right. Really. There's, there's Jesus, and there's Captain Christopher Pike, and there's working with John Wayne. Now, when you've accomplished those three things <laughs> Captain of the Enterprise, work with John Wayne, King of Kings, tick them all off. That's right. <laughs> it's pretty impressive when you think about it as an acting career. Right. So Mike Barr used Captain Christopher Pike quite extensively in Star Trek Annual Number One. Uh, I've already mentioned the title. The cover is uh, a very, it's a rather static and stiff poster image, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's Kirk and Spock both wearing their, um, the, well, the cage uniforms, really, because in yeah. We're No Man, everyone wore the same colour. Yeah. And Spock's wearing blue on the cover. Dr. McCoy's the, the funny alien race that uh, we'll meet in the course of the story. The Enterprise shooting in front of a fiery ball. Probably mm-hmm. a big sun going Nova, if mm-hmm. we're following the storyline. It's very reminiscent of the original ad for Star Trek. Yeah. As it appeared in TV Guide. Oh, yeah. That's Which true. I presume I presume that's intentional. Probably so, yeah. Because it's heartening back to the beginning of uh, of the original Star Trek. Do you like the cover? Yeah, you know, I, I, I like it. I mean, it's it's got that movie poster feel. And, uh, you know, the likenesses are actually pretty good. I, I think they're probably the best likenesses in the book. Um which the likenesses are, are, you know, just like almost any Star Trek book of this period, they're they're hot and cold. I mean, they're 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 extremely hot or extremely cold. There seems to be kind of no no in yeah. between. Yeah. I mean, there's a moment in the middle of it. I mean, we'll get to it when we we break it down. There's a, there is a lovely shot of Christopher Pike on page uh, 
16th, panel one of page 16, that does look like Jeffrey Hunter. But right. then on the page before that, he bears little resemblance to Jeffrey Hunter. Right. But for the most part, I find that, that the art's very clean and stylized and very nice. Yeah, it's It nice. looks, it has that sheen of the original pilot movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I liked it overall. It's, 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 a, it's actually quite a bit better than, than the monthly Star Trek comic usually was. Um, yes, yeah, I, I will totally agree with that. <laughs> no disrespect to Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran. No, no, I just, I kind of wonder sometimes if they were the guys for Star Trek, you know. And, yeah, uh, but, uh, you know, yeah, the art in this is, is lovely and clean, and I'll give him a pass on some of the likenesses, because at least it's not horrendously photo-referenced. Right, right. He yeah. is actually doing his best to draw the actor's within the parameters of the story and he's not just tracing a bunch of photos so we'll uh, we'll give david ross a, a a thumbs up right overall i think uh mike w bar wrote and edited it as i've mentioned david ross penciled bob smith inked augustine mass lettered carl gafford colored marv wolfman and dave cochran were apparently the co-plotters on stardate 8370.2 the excelsior and the surak under the commands of admiral kirk and captain spock respectively are summoned to a very specific set of coordinates by starfleet these coordinates were the location of first contact with a race known as the tralmanai but more importantly this was also the coordinates of kirk's first mission as captain of the uss enterprise to best understand the events of the present kirk decides to regale his crew members that were not there with tales of the past Upon abdicating command of the USS Saladin, Captain James T. Kirk succeeded Captain Christopher Pike as captain of the Enterprise on Stardate 1281.5. His first mission, after selecting his crew, that includes a new communications officer, Lieutenant Ura, a new ship surgeon, Dr. Leonard McCoy, his old friend, and a new first officer, college classmate Gary Mitchell, is to ferry Pike, now promoted to Admiral, to his new assignment. Along the way, however, Pike is kidnapped by an alien race, the aforementioned Traumani. <laughs> Attempts to retrieve him prove futile, but Kirk and Cole learn that Pike encountered the race back when Robert April commanded the Enterprise. Pike prevented the Tralmanai from entering the radiation field of a star about to go nova around Draxis 2. Kirk orders the Enterprise to head to Draxis 2, a long shot, but it's the only clue they've got. Upon arrival, they see a fleet of Tralmanai vessels, and thanks to some clever scanning from Scotty, they beam over to the ship that has Pike on it. They see Pike strapped to what looks like a torture machine and prepare for battle, although Kirk continues to order caution. Spock, however, mind melds with the Tralmanai and learns that Pike is in fact being honoured to die with the Tralmanai, as, in preventing their exposure to the radiation of the Nova, do tie a race. With McCoy's aid, Spock fixes the Tralamanai devices, enabling them to reproduce the Nova energy they require to survive. With that done, the Tralamanai shed their skins, beginning a rebirth. They refuse entry into the Federation at this time, as they have a lot of work to do rebuilding their own society. Back in the present, the Tralamanai apologize for their past actions, and peace talks with a new race begin as the adventure continues. Very nice. There, the end. <laughs> um, one of the things I did notice about this, by pure coincidence, uh, I recently watched the Space 1999 episode, The Bringers of Wonder. Okay. And the end of this episode, the plot twist, 
that the Trailman I need radiation of the Nova to survive is exactly the same plot twist as Ooh. the aliens in that story, except uh. they need to explode the nuclear waste on Moon Base Alpha, and that nuclear waste exploding will give them the energy that they need to survive. Oh. So I thought that was that was pretty coincidental. Well, maybe I yes. Watch that as I read this again. Maybe not so coincidental. Maybe Mike W. Barr saw that episode. <laughs> you think Mike W. Barr was a Space 1999 fan? Uh, he might He might be. It might have been osmosis, too. It might have just, you know, it, 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 he didn't mean to do that, but it was in his brain and you know, it came out. You know, that happened. Subconsciously, it may have just lodged in there at right. some point. I mean, it's, you know, it's just one of those, huh, that's a coincidence. I'm not saying that he did rip them off. Right, right, right. If you're going to rip stuff off, I don't think you'd go to Space 1999. <laughs> <laughs> I love Space 1999, and, you know, I'm not dissing on the show uh you and i both had the same exact same note about this this takes place in dc comics trek continuity doesn't it yes. framing sequence takes place in between star trek 2 um star trek 3 sorry mm-hmm. and 4 not star mm-hmm. trek 2 yeah. in the dc comics were you reading the dc book at the time yeah i, I was i was I, I didn't read it I had trouble finding it, so um, uh, you know I would pick it up sporadically as it as it appeared on the newsstand in front of me. But uh, yeah, so I knew the whole deal with the fact that they had the Excelsior now, and and uh, you know Spock was on a Surak, and and because they they didn't want to reunite them just yet because they 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 had to continue on uh, after we left off on Vulcan in Star Trek Three at the end, but they they also couldn't. They couldn't like put Spock. They couldn't put. They didn't have an Enterprise. Obviously, spoiler warning. If you haven't seen Star Trek Three, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's thirty some year old movie. Uh, but uh, uh, but yeah. It, so it was. Yeah. It. it uh, I knew the whole situation, which uh, is is kind of odd now when you go back and read those comics. But uh, like this, for instance. But uh, yeah, there's there's a part of me that thinks this this kind of works much better without the framing sequence nowadays. Yeah, it does. I mean, ultimately, the payoff at the end that they've come to join Starfleet is a nice little touch. Mm -hmm. But without the framing sequence, the story holds up better because now it does kind of exist in this DC continuity that doesn't really exist anymore. Right. If it ever really did. I liked DC's series at the time through Mike W. Barr writing it. I thought it was very good. And Len Wein did a, a good issue regarding the, the 25th anniversary where he had the TV series crew meet the film crew. Yes. Did you ever read that one? Yes, yes. I enjoyed that one. The premise of that one was that uh, when tomorrow is yesterday, when they return back to the future, they overshoot by 20 years. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was that was quite an interesting issue. But yeah, on the whole, it, it, it looking back on it now, it was quite hit and miss after the first two years or so. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting in the, in the text piece in, this, uh, in the annual... Uh, Barr says, you know, they discussed, well, what do we do in between the films? You know, now that we've, they started, they started the series, I think, in between two and three, right? I think, yeah, because Spock was dead. Um, and then they did the, the movie special. So they tied the movie into the continuity of the, the series, a Star Trek three movie special. And then they went from there. And uh, so he said, well, we don't want to go back and tell stories you know, set during the TV series, and I'm kind of like, well, why? Why don't you just, you know, why don't you do that? You know, instead of making up this continuity that you know you're not, you're going to have to blow apart in two years. You know, <laughs> but 
I guess hindsight's twenty twenty. They they felt like they, you know, maybe Paramount was like, nah, don't push the old stuff, push the new stuff. I, I don't I don't know, you know, but or uh, maybe they were they were influenced by what Marvel was doing with Star Wars. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah well, that's true. They, yeah, they were setting their stuff in between the films as they currently were. So maybe they thought, yeah, all right, we'll do that as well. But yeah, it did lead to some um, hasty tap dancing. Yeah. When Star Trek Four came along, didn't it? Right, right. They had to put Kirk back in trouble with Starfleet and and get him back to Vulcan, and <laughs> so they could take off in the in the Klingon ship. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the framing sequence—they're all wearing the movie costumes. Uh, Savick is drawn to look like Robin Curtis. Yeah, that's a change, right, <laughs> from the early yeah. issues. Yeah, because in the in the comic series, Tom Sutton was drawing her to look like Kirstie Alley, wasn't he? I th- at, at least up until Star Trek Three, I don't remember afterwards. I guess in uh, let's see, in the Who's Who in Star Trek, she looks like uh, just pop that just image popped in my head. I believe she looks like uh, uh, like Robin Curtis. I, I, hmm. I, I think so. I think maybe they switched over after Star Trek Three. I I don't know for sure though. It's been a while since I've since I've looked at the other at the other comics I have. So. Uh, yeah, that's that's. Uh, I guess it could go either way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, 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 you've got a couple of notes on the the opening pages. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Scotty's uh, one thing I like the. I do like the movie, the Star Trek Two on movie uniforms, uh, and I kind of like when they have the variations on it. Like Scotty's got the uh, the bomber jacket version because you didn't see Scotty in the full uniform very often. He usually had the vest on or. Or this, or you know, he didn't have the the regular flapped jacket yeah, or he on. Had the white engineering outfit. Oh no! Right with the weird circular pattern thing on on it, or for, for no, it looked cool, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so the kid from Witch Mountain could come in and die, you know, and all. So <laughs> poor kid, <laughs> poor kid, poor nephew. That's kind of his nephew and kind of not, right? <laughs> yeah, he's his nephew if you read Vonda McIntyre's book. Right, or if you see the the extended cut or whatever, I guess. Or, oh yeah, the one on the DVD has extra couple of lines in, doesn't it? Yeah. Right, right, yeah. So. A, a director's cut on the DVD, on the DVD special edition. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. After the framing sequence, we're straight into the old days. First off, I I do actually think that David Ross does a great job with the tech. Mm-hmm. I think his depiction of the USS Saladin's bridge, which he makes look like the bridge of the Enterprise in kind of a mixture of what in the cage and were no man. It's not as colourful in the cage right. as it would be in no, where no man has gone before. But then it's not as colourful in where no man has gone before as it would be in the series that followed. Yeah. So it does a pretty good job of making it mirror that technology when if the text piece again that you referred to earlier is to be believed all he had to go off was freeze frame in the videotape. <laughs> Mike W. Barr says, I gave him a copy of Where No Man Has Gone Before and the cage and said, here you go, that's your reference. I mean, I presume they could have got a hold of the Where No Man Has Gone Before photo novel. Yeah, yeah. That, that probably would have helped him. One of the things I was a little bit confused about, I don't ever recall them having green jumpers in the right. cage at Where No Man. Don't they have just yellow and blue? And then in Where No Man, they only have yellow, don't they? Or well, orange? I was thinking the same thing, but then for some reason... It might be because of this comic. I, I keep thinking I've seen Shatner in a green shirt, and it might be because of his wraparound uh, thing he wears. You know, on the series, mm. his his variations on his 
casual, you know, wraparound thing, you know, that... Uh, yeah, is, is William Shatner's put a bit of weight on top. Right. <laughs> so let's put him in the wraparound because we think it makes him look a little bit thinner. Let me ask I you actually this. think it had the reverse effect. I, I think you're right. Let me ask you this. Why in the world didn't they just get him bigger shirts? I mean, why didn't they just have him shirts? Well, it's that- funny. They, they cover that in Mark Cushman's uh, These Are the Voyages books. Apparently, it was a budget thing. Oh. It was simply so you get to the point that every time they would dry clean the uniforms, they'd shrink. <laughs> And so you get to the point on Shatner where it's riding up him. And it's not that he's put a lot of weight on. It's that the dry cleaner has shrunk his uniform. Right. That's why they changed the uniform uh, in the third season to whatever it was. It Velour in the third season. Yeah, I think so. That's why they changed the uniforms. Those tops didn't shrink when they washed them. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Because, you know, on, on Next Generation, they kept making Riker's shoulders wider and wider and wider to kind of cover up that he'd been putting on weight. <laughs> uh, I, I knew that the Picard manoeuvre came from the fact that on Patrick Stewart, the uniform rode up right. every time he sat down. Right. So whenever he stand up, he would have to tug it down, and that's where that came from. Right. It's just the uniform would ride up on him every time he sat down. All these little behind-the-scenes tidbits. <laughs> um, the opening is interesting from yeah. um, a Geeky Trek fan point of view. There is a line in Where No Man Has Gone Before where Dr. Dana says, you specifically asked for Gary Mitchell on your first command. Mm-hmm. She doesn't say on this command, which can give you some wiggle room that Kirk was a captain before he was captain of the Enterprise. I don't like that. No, I don't like I like that the Enterprise was his first captaincy. Now, we learn in, um, is it Obsession? Yes. That he took command of another ship. The Farragut, yeah. When the captain was incapacitated, Mm -hmm. and that showed Starfleet that he had the right stuff. Mm -hmm. For me, his love of Enterprise comes from that it was his first command. And there was a little bit of this that didn't jibe for me. If he was captain of the US Saladin first then why does he long for deep space and wondering what's out there if he's just being captain of a deep space mission? Right, right, right. I, I was wondering, did, did the Saladin come, Saladin, did it come from any other source or did Barr, uh, did it come from a novel or did Barr just make it up whole cloth? Uh, I have no clue, to uh, be honest. I, I'd never, I've never read a novel, a Star Trek novel that has Kurt be captain of another vessel beforehand before he's captain enterprise i mean you can interpret dana's line like that but there's a lot of lines like that in where no man has gone before she actually says you're talking about killing a man you've worked with for years now as time has gone on i mean specifically the okuda's encyclopedia is probably most responsible for this but there's this fan thing that where no man has gone before he's kirk's first mission as captain for the enterprise line in episode kind of implies well it can't be Unless the implication is Spock was at Starfleet Command, a Starfleet Academy with Kirk and Mitchell. But that doesn't jibe with the cage. 13 years ago, Spock was on the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where Kirk, 13 years ago, will have only been 20. Right, right. So, you see, I, I think an argument can be made where no man has gone before is two, at most, two years into his five year mission. Because that's just how pilots were made back then. The cage isn't Pike's first adventure on the Enterprise. No, no, I, I didn't. I didn't get the impression from Where No Man that 
that that was his first mission because you you uh, because he wouldn't have felt like you know the the the, the relationships he had with everybody, especially Mitchell, uh, in his post there on the Enterprise is implied to me that they have been together for at least at, at, at the very least several months. You know, I mm. mean, I, I just can't see that being like you know they pulled out a space dock and then went through the galactic barrier and this happened. You know, it's just... No, well, the relationships with the crew as well. It's like Mitchell's holding that girl's hand when they right. go through the galactic barrier. He's obviously good friends with Lee Kelso. Yes. These aren't people he's only just started working with. He even needles Spock a little bit. Right, right. And, and, so it's, and Kirk and Spock are playing chess already, you know. So, I and mean, he calls him Jim. Right, right. So, so there's there's all these things that's never jibed with me that the Akudas said right this is the first mission. You know, there's I, so much when you actually watch the show, that doesn't jibe at all. Right, right. I, I you know I, I, as much as I love the Star Trek Encyclopedia and I've read it to death and I, I've still got like an old copy that came out like I think it came out right as Next Generation was 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 closing the series, and so it's old. It's like from '93 or something. It's like 20 years old, but. I really do feel like they kind of, because those guys, Next Generation was the current thing, and Deep Space Nine was on, and, and because those people worked on those shows, I do kind of feel like they gave the classic Trek a short short thrift in that. I really do. I mean, it's it's kind of like they, you know, some of the some of the bridge characters, you know, get like uh, two paragraphs, you know, where <laughs> some of the... Some of the Lawcon characters on Next Generation get a full page, you know. So it's <laughs> it, it did seem like in the mid to late nineties they did go through a period of dismissing the original, and mm-hmm. I I think that came from the top. I think that was a, was Rick Berman, to Probably. be honest. Ron D. Moore has actually said in interviews there was a time where we were forbidden from mentioning stuff from the original, even if there was a parallel in the plot. Hmm. And I would kind of get around it by sneaking in planet names because I knew Rick wouldn't know them. So oh. <laughs> so Ronald D. Moore was trying to slide in references hither and yon. And the Akudas have gone on record as saying, you know, for the first five years, we didn't mention the original show. You didn't mention that you were a fan. Hmm. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I kind of think that that came that comes from the top down. Yeah. So that that's a that's a little bit of a niggle for me. Yeah, and you you've got the note Sulu's the the navigator here, right? But yeah, like you point out, he isn't in where no man has gone before. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he he he's a physicist. They call him mm. they call him on the board. Um, he's got a blue shirt on, right? I, I believe, yeah. And yeah. uh, he's got a blue shirt on, but Spock doesn't, which is odd. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's quite strange. Well, I don't think they've worked out the color code <laughs> in the early ones. No, and there's no red, no red until uh, Corbinite maneuver. So um, you know, or, or man trap, whichever one you want to prefer. Yeah. But, but uh, uh, I do wonder if in the comic they just gave Kirk a green and, and Scotty's got red on just to differentiate them. Maybe they thought in a comic it would look a bit boring if they were all wearing orange. Right, right. Uh, yeah, the the thing with Sulu, you know, it's I can't remember if they ever really referenced that, but yeah, they've got Bar's got Sulu, you know, at the at the. I, actually, he's sitting in Chekhov's chair. He's a navigator, right? Which is oh, so he is, yeah. yeah so, so he's he's on. But, he's, yeah, because of course Kelso was the uh, helmsman, wasn't he? Right. Yeah, because he was sitting next to Mitchell in Where No Man's Gone Before. So I guess yeah. Mitchell was the navigator. And according to this, the first officer, which we'll 
get into that later. We're not sure about that, right? <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think we have. Uh, I think we have a bit of a problem with that. Look, where no man has gone before is ambiguous about that, isn't it? Right. Spock's not first officer in where no man. No. Or do you think he is? Well, I, don't, I well, I said no, but I don't. I don't. I guess I was saying I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and so, see, I, it doesn't spell it out in that episode whether Mitchell is his first officer or not. You know, that might, so, have, that might have been uh, Roddenberry playing it safe because, you know, according to legend, they didn't want Spock kept at all. You know, they didn't want Spock in where no man has gone before, the second pilot. And he basically said, no, he's in. You know, we, we're keeping him in. But maybe he thought, well, I don't really want him to – I want him to be first officer, but – I'm not going to push it here, so I know I'm killing off Gary Mitchell, so <laughs> I don't know if he thought that so, far ahead, but... <laughs> we'll see what happens later, because Pike in this story is lobbying for him to keep number one as first officer. Yes. yes. So Mike W. Barr gets rid of her quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because uh, when I was a kid, I guess because from just because they called her number one... It, 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 I thought she was an android. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess because they didn't bother to give her a name, and maybe it was the whole Muds, uh, the I Mud episode where all the androids had numbers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but that just stuck in my head. And then, you know, eventually at some point, I read enough Trek, um, you know, the Star Trek encyclopedia and the Concordance and all those type things, and figured out, oh well, maybe uh, she's not an android. She's just. <laughs> She's just not very well fleshed out. <laughs> no, nobody bothered to give her a name. No, and they've played with that subsequently. Have the IDW books? They go out of their way to not give her a name. Yeah. When she's appeared in uh, in them, I think John Byrne did a, a mini series that was just about her. So that flatly contradicts this. Right, right. Well, but you can say, I mean, Doctor Boyce does say she may walk again with reconstructive surgery. So I suppose you can make it all fit together if you want to, but Star Trek continuity is all over the place now anyway, isn't it? Right, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, you know, you brought up Kelso. You know, it's it's uh, it's kind of nice to, to see him here. It's You know, when you're watching Where No Man Has Gone Before, you fully think that this guy's going to make it to series. I mean, he's he's you know takes quite a bit of, uh, uh, you know, screen, he has quite a bit of screen time, really, which is all that more tragic when you see what happens to him. Um, so it's kind of nice to see him, uh, Barr get to play with him a little bit here. He's, he kind of would have been an interesting character cause he's, he's a smart aleck, you know, <laughs> he's, yeah. he, he's quippy, you know, he's, he's kind of got a mouth on him. So it, uh, but you know, bones kind of takes that over, but in a more, uh, a grumbly, grumbly way, you know, rather than a jokey way. So, mm. And and you mentioned <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned Bones Bar kind of has to jump through hoops a little bit to get Bones into this. Because obviously McCoy isn't in where no man has gone before, it's Dr. Piper. Right. Who replaces Dr. Boyce, who mentions in this story that he's thinking about retiring anywhere. So we've kind of got a convoluted line of dialogue about, well, I'm gonna to have to take a leave of absence soon anyway, because I'm I'm gonna go off and see my daughter. Yeah, right, which they bring the daughter in from that legendary, uh, not-produced uh, script that Dorothy Fontana wrote that somehow morphed into The Way to Eden, and she took her name off of it. <laughs> so, you blame her? No. <laughs> we reached, brother. That's right, the, the, the hip, <laughs> Spock and the hippie jam session, you know. Uh, you know, that, that episode gets slagged off a lot, but there's fun to be had if you've had the right amount of alcohol. 
Right, it's got it's got um, uh, what's his name Napier. Uh, yeah, it's got uh, Charles Napier. Charles it? Napier. Yeah, yeah. I'd say he's great in everything, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. he's he's he was the good old boys. <laughs> yeah, the good old Blues Brothers boys. Yeah, that's and right. He, he was great all four times he fought the Incredible Hulk. Right, I mean, <laughs> and betrayed John Rambo. Yeah, and was something to do with Roswell in Deep Space Nine. So the guy got around. Right, and he was even on. Uh, Superman the animated series and, and Justice League is the general, so that's mm-hmm. a voice. So you know, yeah, he's got he's got a lot of nerd cred, you know. <laughs> so well, we're, we're all right with Charles Napier. I don't uh, mind. One thing I, I do did, like. The, oh, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. One thing I did like I, I wanted to mention when Kirk meets Scotty, that uh, you know he says, "Y'all, I was assistant engineer on the Farragut." Which I'm kind of like, was he? <laughs> that that was kind of like, was Kirk ever assistant engineer? I guess that might explain how he knew about engineering here and there on the on the series. But uh, Scotty's kind of, you know, isn't he's like, oh great, you know, basically uh, now I'm going to have him telling me how to do my job. And it's uh, I, I kind of wondered if that wasn't Barr winking a little bit at the fact that uh, you know Shatner and Doohan apparently didn't get along or. Or Doohan, Doohan didn't like uh, Shatner, apparently, and was pretty vocal about it. Over the yeah, years. Shatner was completely oblivious. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, until um, I don't know. My, see, my retcon for that is as maybe when studying to be a captain, you have to serve a certain amount of time in each department. Okay, well, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, because you kind of want your captains to actually know what's going on everywhere. Right. So, yeah, having him be an assistant engineer, it's, it's, it is a bit of an eyebrow raiser. Yeah. But, all right, we'll assume that captains have to do, you know, a little bit of an apprenticeship everywhere. Right, right. I, I always assumed Kirk was like, uh, you know, it was like Sulu. He was like a helmsman or, or that was his primary function or something aboard the ship, you know, and, and, and that's how he got into the captain's chair. But, I mean, of course, he didn't have to because, obviously, Spock became captain. He was science officer. But, I don't know, I just... I always assumed since he he wore the gold shirt the whole time in, in my head, even though I know they switched uniforms. But hmm. but uh, yeah, so you know my head oh, cannon, my head cannon, as uh, Professor <laughs> Allen and Emily would say. Uh, yeah, you know I didn't know what that was till I heard them talk about it, and I I'm like, I like I like my head cannon more than real cannon. Oh, I do too. Yeah, in my, in my head cannon, I disregard everything I don't like. Yeah. My head cannon DC's been on Earth one since nineteen eighty five. What are you talking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> um, I wasn't sure about the scene. This was the only one that it, it has then like a roundup bit. Doctor McCoy gets his orders, which is a little bit reminiscent of um, a reserve activation clause, right? From Star Trek: The Motion Picture. But okay. he drafted me. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's Uhura's. Do you not think Uhura's page is a little bit sexist? Yeah. Or stereotyped by yeah, today's standards. It, it, Everyone it. else has got a great career, and everyone's like, oh, I've been promoted, I'm going to the Enterprise, Jim Kirk's put me bad in harness, yay! And Uhura's like, well, I've, I've just been proposed to, but I want to go out to space. Yeah. It's, it, it's like, and it's like uh, it'd be more, uh, you know, Star Trek, obviously a progressive, supposed to be a more progressive era, you know, there's not sexism, there's not racism, but yet you still got this kind of, oh, a woman's place out in space, baby. It's here with me, you know that type of that type, yeah, of, this type of scene. 
<laughs> the guy that she's with, he really is the pimp from Superman the movie, isn't he? Yeah. Say, Jim, woo! <laughs> <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's inadvertently hilarious if you read his dialogue with that voice. <laughs> but yeah, I could have done without that page, to be yeah. honest with you. You know, that's the unfortunate part with Ahura. They they never did enough with her, honestly, that when they do stuff like this, it, it never feels right because we just don't know. You know, we don't know, unfortunately, enough about her to know, to, to feel like, okay, that makes sense. You know, uh, I mean, it's it's a shame that they didn't do more with her. And I, I completely understand why Nichelle Nichols was kind of like, you know what, I... I'm just a glorified, you know, secretary here. I'm leaving, you know, and, and she got talked out of it, obviously. A legend has it by Martin Luther King Jr. said, oh, no, you can't. Don't don't leave. You know, you're the you're 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 our representation on television. You're, you know, this is a big thing. And, and uh, which is which it was, obviously. But uh, but I wish they had, you know, I mean, and I know there's a lot about, uh, you know, I know Scott Gardner and and and, and Chris Honeywell on on uh, on Star Trek Monthly Mondays, talk about the the whole Seven Dwarfs thing, you know, with the, you know, were these guys really, you know, we look at the the Scotty and and Uhura and Chekhov and Sulu as the as the the bridge crew, and they're the characters after the big three, but were they really, or is it just our perception now because they kept coming back and they showed up at conventions and 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 I think there's something to that, but I also think. They, you know, if you look at the, they were in the promotional materials. I mean, there's a there's a classic shot that's got Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, but Ahura's there with her hand on Spock's shoulder, on Nimoy's shoulder. So, well, how much how much of the pre publicity shots had Grizzly Whitney in them? Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true too. But I think they fully intended her to be a pretty integral. Yeah. Part. Well, if you if you go back and watch the first thirteen episodes of the first season in isolation. And you try and forget everything, unlearn what you have learned, as Yoda would have it, if you want to cross the streams. Right. You watch those 13 episodes in isolation. A, not only are you gobsmacked by how good William Shatner is in those early shows, mm-hmm. but it is, it's an ensemble piece. Right. Jo- Yeoman Rand and Sulu, and even arguably Uhura, if you count in episodes like Charlie X, they get as much to do in those shows as Spock and McCoy do. Right. So there is something to be said for the fact that as the series went on, they certainly started playing up the stars. I mean, McCoy and Bone and Spock's relationship became breakout, so -hmm. the writers started writing it more, which obviously DeForest Kelly was grateful for because he got bumped up to opening credit status. Right. But then when Shatner starts feeling threatened by Nimoy, I get what they're saying, but there's an awful lot of the early ones that was an ensemble piece. Yeah. But then when you get to the later episode, and I'm I'm still one of those people who misses Yeoman Rand. Right, right. You know, I I loved Yeoman Rand. I thought she was great. Yeah. As you get to the later ones, yeah, you can swap the communications officer for some nomad blonde, and it doesn't matter. Or maybe it's not Sulu at the con at the helm. Sorry, and it doesn't matter, does it? They'll just right. swap the actors out. Right. And I still maintain Star Trek Two would have been much more impressive if Chekhov hadn't been in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Right. If they'd not put him in and said he was off doing something, if they'd not had all of them in every film right. and just brought him back for two, that would have had much more impact. Yeah. And if after two, George Takai wasn't in him until six. Right. 
Or if they had Sulu not in Star Trek and then have him be the one that Khan recognized because he could actually recognize him. <laughs> yeah, have him be captain of, um, the, what was the vessel Reliant, Terrell was right? captain of? Death. That's real... it, captain of Reliant, yeah. yeah, yeah. That would have worked. Right. But yeah. I, I think they, they did shoot themselves. I mean, I think you can, you can make an argument the only one you need other than Big Three is Scotty. Right. Right, because he's chief engineer. Plus, Everyone he got else, more play than the others too. I mean. Yeah, well, he was he was considered next star down after Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly. Again, right. this is in these are the voyages, Cushman's book, which is well worth reading if you've not I, picked it I've, up. I'm good. I've got a, I've got me an Amazon gift card, and I'm going to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much good information in there that you just accepted as as fact. Like, oh, there you go. William Shatner's got his top off again. He hated that. Because every time he, he took his top off, Roddenberry had this vision of the future where men weren't hurry. So he had to go and get his chest waxed, and he hated it. <laughs> so he shirt and taking his top off was not William Shatner. Oh, He didn't want, didn't want to go and get waxed up every time he had to do it. He didn't like it. I've always wondered um, that because, you know, I've always wondered, like, this, this Shatner, like, really into – because Nimoy, you know, he, they show him without his shirt off a couple times, and he's hairy. You know, yeah, uh, they don't. Maybe Vulcans are hurry. I guess, yeah. It's like what you think, you know, with them, they, they'd be more apt to shave them, you know, to get rid yeah. of un, unsavory body hair or whatever. You know? Also, there's all these other myths. Robert Justman, in these memos, will go through the scripts saying, do we need to be paying Jimmy Dewar $900 in this script when we can get um, a straight out of, of – Dance, dance school, straight out of acting school, actors through this one line for $200. Do we really need Nichelle Nichols on the bridge for this entire episode when she doesn't say anything? We can save $500. So in a lot of these cases, it isn't Shatner costing them the work. It's Robert Justman. <laughs> they should be ticked off at him, not Shatner. <laughs> it's all of this stuff that's in these memos that it's nothing to do with Shatner comes across really well in oh. the first season book. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's well. You know, when nope. all that came out, when I was, I was, yeah, I was anything bad to say about it. Right. It's it's uh, it's it's kind of interesting because when you know when I was a kid and I first started reading or a teenager and I first started reading these things, I, you know, it kind of like, oh man, they don't like each other. You know, it's <laughs> it kind of it kind of hurt my feelings. I, I had some friends went to a Star Trek convention. They said Doohan was just ripping Shatner a new one. You know, it's <laughs> so. Uh, I was like, oh man, you know, so I, you know, I read Star Trek, uh, Star Trek memories, Shatner talks to all of them, but Dewan won't talk to him. Right. And, uh, yeah. And you know, he's like, he, he couldn't get through to him, but apparently before he died, they, they buried the hatchet. So that's nice, I guess. So, but, uh, so yeah, maybe they should have been after Bob Justman, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was the one cutting him out of script <laughs> and Roddenberry would write in bits for Nurse Chapel. Oh yeah, <laughs> I wonder why. I wonder why. Yeah, yeah. she's got to bring some soup to Spock or something, right? <laughs> yeah, she's got she's got a very important role. Now she's uh, uh, and that's another thing, you know. Again, with this, uh, and we're getting way off topic, but who cares? We're talking Star Trek, right? Uh, yeah. With Nurse Chapel, you know, she's pining for Spock in uh, the Naked Time, but then we find out she's engaged. She's <laughs> her her man. Was his name Corby or whatever? That with yeah, uh, Roger Corby with Ruck and and you know Ted Casty and uh, that gorgeous chick, the android chick on the you know what what was her name? I can't think of her Sherry, name. Sherry Jackson is out there. Yeah. Oh wow. But whoa. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> good thing Cindy's not here right now. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, ditto. Yeah, smack. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the Supermate sound effect. 
but yeah, I mean, you know, she's got, you know, she's engaged, but she's all about Spock and, you know, so I think sometimes they, yeah, that might be a case where they, that, that anthology kind of mentality came in versus actual continuity. You know, it's like, well, in this episode, uh, we've got a lady that's, you know, we're going to this planet. Oh, well, use, uh, Use Magil, you know, uh, use her character. Okay, you know, because Roddenberry wanted a story around her maybe or something. I don't know. But, you know, it's, you know, sometimes you could maybe see the puppet strings kind of showing a little bit. But um, one thing that, that, uh, well, I've totally lost my thought. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've got to, Gary Mitchell's been summoned by Jim. Right, right. Yeah, you know, through this book, and I'm going to bring this up later, does, does Gary Mitchell really seem like first officer material to you? <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, he seems a bit flaky, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, even later on when this big crisis is going on, he's lounging in the wherever the room is, the conference room or whatever it is. He's like laid back lounging around. He's like, you know, uh, like uh, Riley in, uh, <laughs> in, in the, the Naked Time or whatever. He's, <laughs> he's just lounging about and... Like who cares? You know, that's I, I just can't see why Kirk was just like, oh, I don't want number one. I don't want Spock. I want this guy. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I want Gary Mitchell as my first officer. Well, maybe that's just showing that as a young captain, his judgment wasn't completely uh, to be trusted. Maybe because so. we know how, how Gary Mitchell turned out, don't we? Right, right. I mean, you know, and, and even in We're No Man, I mean, I did. I think Barr maybe. My one criticism of his characterization is he may be go too he may he goes a little too far with with Mitchell being you know over kind of over the top and I don't know if he was just trying to prove that Mitchell wasn't the the first officer material or that that to make it more tragic uh, so you like you, so you'd like Mitchell as a fun loving guy and look at this horrible thing that happens to him you know. Uh, I don't know where he was going with that, but either way, it comes across as this guy's a clown. <laughs> it's all this serious stuff's going on, and not that you don't need a little levity here and there, but he's he's a little he's a little too loose, <laughs> you know, for the situation. Yeah. Um, well, like we've said, it's ambiguous in where no man whether he is the first officer or not. But yeah, he does seem to be somebody who gets away with an awful lot because he's best friends with the captain. Right. And unlike some of the other characters in the show, he looks like somebody who exploits that. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's so, kind of, yeah. When we meet him, you know, he's he's on this pleasure planet, and uh, this, this you know, alien woman's like, hey, where are you going, baby? I made you breakfast or whatever. And he's like, oh, I got I to gotta go. I'm, I'm going to the Enterprise. It, it's kind of, I wonder if, you know, uh, Barr's using Mitchell here, you know, to, to kind of soak up some of that myth of Kirk as, that partial myth of Kirk as womanizer, you know, because obviously that has grown beyond what it, what is, obviously Kirk got some action on the series. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, when he's zipping his boots up, you know, in the woman's fresh Yeah, when the whole point of the episode is the woman wants an STD off him. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's it's not complete myth, but it's been exaggerated, you know, in, to the point where Abrams, you know, picks that up and runs with it, you know. Uh, but I know I shouldn't have mentioned Abrams in this episode. <laughs> How dare you? No. Uh, <laughs> but, 
but I, you know, we get Mitchell as, as, uh, as the ladies man here. So, you know, I, you know, cause early on you got the impression that Kirk was in the early episodes was really only in love with the ship. You know, the ship was his lady and he had, he was attracted to Yeoman Rand, but unless he got split in two, that wasn't going to go anywhere. And then it got really nasty then. So mm. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't going to do anything apart from rape. <laughs> right. Exactly. So <laughs> it was quite, um, quite a daring show, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, the, in its, in its way, you know, and if Yeoman Rand had transferred off the ship at the end of that episode, you could completely have understood why. I mean, why would you, I mean, I know it, wasn't really the captain, but obviously that was part of him. And then you got to look at him every day. It's a wonder she didn't like stay as far away from him as possible or go to some, you know, deep space, you know, station somewhere. She had a lot of counseling. Yeah. Must, must have. Have you read the, uh, the John Byrne photo novel with the little yeoman Rand story? Yeah. The little backup where she just leaves and yeah. uh, Kirk just walks in to beam her off, but they don't actually talk to each other. I actually yeah. thought it was quite sweet. It was. Yeah. I really liked that one. Yeah. He's doing a good job with those photo novels. I think so. Yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed them. Of course we plug, we covered them the two of them on Supermates, but, but, uh, I really have enjoyed them a lot. Um, I'm looking forward to the, the next one coming out. I still got a few I've got to catch up on, but yeah, those are sweet. Yeah. There's a lovely little Pike Spock bit. Um, some lovely shots of Enterprise in Space Dark, which obviously they couldn't have afforded to do on television. Yeah, definitely no. <laughs> uh, you know the the bit with Spock and, and Pike's kind of funny because he gives him the the Idic uh, medallion. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and to me, I think that's funny now because I think it was Star Trek Memories of Chat Shatner's book. They talk about. And they have quotes from from Nimoy. He hated that thing. It was a, it was basically Roddenberry that, according to Nimoy, Roddenberry shoving a commercial into the series. Roddenberry was you know not around much in season three. Uh, they 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 were having problems with what was Fred Freeburger? Is that Fred Free? My pronouncing right? Freeburger? For, and, yeah, Freeburger, Freiburger, yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like that. And uh, or Nimoy was anyway. And uh, they weren't getting along, and, and, you know, I think Nimoy even tried to contact Roddenberry to intercede on a few things, and he couldn't get a hold of him, or he'd say he was coming, and he didn't. And and so then he gets these script changes where there's this exchange with Spock, you know, and this Idic medallion. I think Shatner already said, no, I'm not doing it. And uh, he suddenly makes it a Vulcan thing and gives it to Nimoy to, to talk about. And... The reason being is that, you know, Roddenberry's got this Lincoln Enterprises company he's part of, like, making hundreds of these over in the corner somewhere, you know, so. Churning them out. He's churning them out, Star Trek, you know, Star Trek uh, merchandise, and uh, and Nemo apparently was really honked off about it, but it's become this this thing that, you know, like, um, years ago when Playmates Toys was making Star Trek uh, action figures, one of the Spocks they made came with the IDIC medallion as the stand for the figure. And once I read that, I'm like, oh boy, I bet Jimmy Moy would love that. <laughs> well, maybe he's grown to love it now. Star Trek's made him a millionaire. I don't know. Right, right. It's like, I am not, I am, I am Spock and I wear my medallion, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
And then what was this ceremony where he gets given a sword? Yeah, that's... that's what was all that about? He gets given a sword to symbolise taking over captaincy of the Enterprise. I guess that's an old naval thing, I guess, right? Right. Harking back, harkening back to the Horatio Hornblower stuff, I guess, maybe, you know? <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, I suppose it could be. I do like that once he gets command, he's taken off the green jumper, and he's got the, the orange-yellow jumper that he wears in no, Were No Man. And then at that point, everyone except Spock's moved over to the orange jumpers. Right. Right. Which I thought was a nice touch. Spock still retains his blue. So there's kind of like an idea that will play out in annual number two as well, that they're in the middle of phasing out old uniforms for the new ones. Yes. Which, unfortunately, in the second one, yeah. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that in a couple of minutes. Uh, having Christopher Pike on board sure was useful. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, if they hadn't, then nothing would have. Nothing would have happened. They'd just been... They'd have just gone away on their own mission and everything would have been fine and Captain Pike would have died here. Yeah, that's right. Which would have, which would have saved him the events of the menagerie, I presume. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because when they encounter the aliens, Kirk says we represent the United Federation of Planets, but they really, <laughs> yeah. they really didn't. I mean, they, were they United Earth Space Agency or whatever? Yeah, I mean. there was USPA, which was what you just said, yeah, and there was... Um, God, there was a space command. Or so. There was a couple of different ones in the early shows, weren't there? I think they worked for the Empire at one time. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> before, before they finally settled on the United Federation of Planets, <laughs> we worked for the Empire. <laughs> well, what's uh, the, but, what is it in the Legion that they have? They have, uh, uh, good Lord, I can't think. I keep getting the United Federation of Planets stuck in my head, but they've got... Something similar in the Legion of Superheroes, so it's maybe they work for them too. I don't, I don't know. Uh, it's always possible. It's possible. You never know with the Legion. That's right. It could have been rebooted into the Federation, right? Yeah. <laughs> no. um, um, I do like they've got all this technology at their fingertips. Yeah, it's Kirk loosing through Pike's handwritten diary. Yeah, that solved the problem. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like that scene in, uh, it's it's like the scene in Star Trek Six where instead of, you know, they're pulling out all those books to translate Klingon when they, <laughs> when they, when they could obviously just, you know, probably look that up on the computer like everything else in Star Trek for 25 yeah. years prior. <laughs> but suddenly we're, we're translating Klingon from a, an English to Klingon dictionary that we were just happened to have. Right, and they're going through stacks of books, and that, yes. that, that's a, it's a cute scene, but it's a little too cutesy. I, I like that movie a lot. It's one of my yeah. favorites, but, it, you know, yeah. But yeah, it so works better here. Yeah, yeah, it does work better here, because you can imagine, yeah, Pike might actually keep a separate journal versus uh, a, a log, a personal log. You know, maybe he's the type that, Especially after you had your mind invaded by Telosians, you might write stuff down. <laughs> yes. It's true. It's the only way you can guarantee that they're not going to read it. Right, right. That's in pencil written down in your diary. So we get a flashback within a flashback. Yes, that's, that's uh, a good point. <laughs> where we reference Robert April. Yeah. So that's uh, so. I guess you know Robert April. Uh, the first time they really established him, that was the animated series, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, the animated series has been in and out continuity for years, right? (laughs) Well, I don't know that it was at this point. I think it was only later on where Roddenberry declared that some elements of the animated series weren't canon. Right. But 
you know, you put it out there, dude. I'm sorry, but it counts. Right. <laughs> it had your seal of approval and all your actors and your story yeah. editor. And... This isn't like fan canon. This wasn't written by other people. You put that out there. Right. That is your name on it, Mr. Roddenberry. Well, it so. was written by a lot of the same people, and you had Dorothy Fontana doing the story editing, and, I mean, it's about as legit as you're going to get, so... Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I honestly don't know what his problem was with the animated series. I mean, it's limited, but it's not awful. No, I mean, and it won several Emmys, I think, and, I mean, I, it kind of surprises me that they, they kind of disavowed it, you know. I mean, the, the, the stock... A lot of the, the, the only thing that really kills it was the the overuse of the stock footage over and over and over and over again, you know, which, mm. which was, that's how filmation operated, you know, obviously that's, you know, Bruce Tim even said he worked for filmation and, you know, he basically animated nothing while he was there. He just picked, went through a book and said, use this stock shot, use this stock shot, <laughs> use this stock shot. Yeah. That's, that's fair enough. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. So the, the crew beam over to the Trollmanai ship, I love all the way through this, not only has he got a phaser pistol rather than a phaser, so he's got Captain Pike's phaser pistol from the, um, from the cage, so the phaser hasn't been invented yet, but it's Kirk who keeps saying, no, don't open fire. Right, right, because that's another myth about Kirk, that he just goes in guns blazing, which yeah. he doesn't, you know, I mean, he's not afraid no, he... to go in guns blazing, but he, he doesn't when it's just... Mitchell wants to, which another reason why he's a horrible first officer. <laughs> he's like, he'll be dead soon. Yeah, the case against Gary Mitchell. Again, <laughs> exhibit D. You know, it's like, yes. Uh, so the Tralamani. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go on. I was going to say the the, the Tralamani or how you pronounce it. They, they they have a pretty. I like the look of them. They're very they're very alien. They don't look. Uh, I, I can't think of anything they specifically look like. Uh, they kind of got a Keith Giffen type look about them, something like Keith Giffen might draw. But uh, uh, they don't have, you know, they're not just aliens with forehead prosthetics like everybody on Next Generation, which is nice. Uh, <laughs> they do actually look like a genuine alien race, don't they? Right. Got Especially slight... at the end where they start shedding their skin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's uh, I think they're pretty nice design i was going to mention earlier when pike gets zapped uh off the ship it looks uh ross did the last days of the jsa special that was supposed to have sent sent the jsa off post-crisis and never see him again and that lasted about what five years or something like that but uh uh he drew that and there's several scenes where people are getting zapped in the same way and and he drew you know, Pike getting zapped in, in very similar fashion. Of course, that comes a little bit after this. This was actually his second pro work, I think, uh, according to the the uh, material that uh, Barr wrote and also Mike's Amazing World of Comics. He did a outs- Batman and the Outsiders annual before this, and then this. So that's pretty impressive because he looks, as we said, it's 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 a really well done book. I mean, it's. Mm. It's for a guy that's just this is his sophomore effort. He, he did a pretty good job. <laughs> yeah, his likenesses of the crew as younger uh, is better than it is in the framing sequences. Yeah, yeah. But for the most part, yeah, I, I think that's really quite clean and sleek and nice. And he captures the cage and where no man has gone before very well. And the ending is typically Star Trek. 
in its plea for understanding and tolerance rather than going in phases firing like Gary Mitchell wants to do. <laughs> and, and you get the lovely seeds of the Spock McCoy bromance where uh, there's a couple of times in this where they both take snipes at each other. Yeah, yeah, McCoy gets off to a really good start. I mean, he starts picking at Spock, you know, it's like, so here we know that McCoy started it. <laughs> yeah, right off Spock the bat. just responded. Yeah, right. It's like, it's like you know, the... You'd be more apt with a shovel than a scalpel, you know, because he's so <laughs> not subtle, you know. Uh, yeah. That, I thought that was a nice line, yeah. Uh, I've really felt like Barr had a good handle on their voices, the characters' voices. Uh, you know, maybe Mitchell was a little – we don't know a lot about Mitchell. We don't. We didn't really see a whole lot of him before he started changing in Where No Man Has Gone Before. Uh, so he's kind of a, a blank slate, really. Uh but you know maybe he's a little a little too loosey goosey uh, for his position. But uh, you know other than that, I felt like you could hear Shatner, you could hear Nimoy, uh, you could you could uh, maybe his uh, you know and, and after what you said, I'm kind of reconsidering it. I thought maybe his Captain Pike was a little uh, a little too uh, soft, you know maybe just a hair, but. But, you know, after you said what you did, and, and you're right, you know, he should have softened up after after his experience in, in the cage. And, and, you know, he was just going through a really bad time in that episode as it begun. Um, so maybe I was a little hasty in that uh, in that estimation. Um, but, you know, other than that, I think he, I think, you know, Barr nailed it. And, I, and I, Barr's one of the, I think he's just a solid writer. I've never read anything by Mike W. Barr I didn't like that I didn't feel like was worth my time. Um, you know, and, and so it was, it was, uh, you know, he had a good handle on everybody. Hmm. He did. And he, he did a great job with Batman and the Outsiders and his Brave and the Bold issues are good. And he was a, a solid, dependable writer in mm. the eighties yeah. who seems to fall out of favor when he had an argument with the uh, Dick Giordano about, um, Bill Finger should be credited as co-creator of Batman. Yeah, I think that, and I think the, uh, the bit, I think him and Denny O'Neill had a bit of a falling out over, uh, Son of the Demon and and uh, things like that because I don't think Denny O'Neill was real happy with him, you know, making Batman and Talia shack up and have a kid. And <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> would he be happy Grant, now? <laughs> Grant Morrison liked it, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> well, on the whole, I I think uh, Annual Number One's great. I mean, it's a bit more self-referential perhaps than the original first mission would have been had they depicted the original show like they did with The Next Generation with all the crew coming together, but they didn't. So Barr does a good job of weaving in the past with the future. We know what will happen to Kelso. We know what will happen to Gary Mitchell. Mm -hmm. So he he manages to blend all that in together. We know what will happen to Christopher Pike. But even with all of that, he still manages to tell a good adventure story as well as giving us lots of little cute character moments. You can make a case that the story doesn't actually start till page 20. Right. of a 40-page book, and the first 20 pages are just set up. Essentially, it's the beginning of, of Star Trek, the motion picture, right. but not as, as long yeah. and without Jerry Goldsmith's score. Right. I, I think it's great. I love that annual. It's one of my favorite Star Trek comics ever. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, I, I think it... I think, you know, it's funny because really, you know, even rereading it, I was more interested in actually all the character interaction than the actual plot. I mean, the plot is kind of secondary to 
to that. Uh, I mean, we want to see, you know, that, that that's the part everybody wanted to see. How did uh, Spock and Kirk meet? How did Spock and McCoy meet? What was the first, who fired the first shot in their little, you know, battle of, of uh, barbs, you know? Uh, so, I mean, that's the part that uh, even as a kid and even today when I, when I picked this up and when I read it now, that's the part that sticks out to me. I always kind of forget the <laughs> the Tromani, uh, th- that whole that whole plot. I, I just it kind of, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I just yeah, yeah that. there, was, there was a plot to this comic, wasn't there? <laughs> and it's not a bad plot at all. I mean, it, but no, it's, just, it's no. just second fiddle to to uh, to the all the character bits. So. Mm. I did mention at the top that we also got Enterprise, the first adventure by Vonda McIntyre, which was released in 1986. It has a quote from Gene Roddenberry on the cover, heartily endorsing it as the Enterprise's first mission. Uh, I haven't read it since 1986, uh, but I didn't like it when I did read it. <laughs> so I, I think my vote goes for this annual, to be honest with you. If I read it, I don't remember. I went through a phase where I just devoured every Star Trek book around that time, and they all blend together. I can't remember which ones I read and which ones I didn't. So, No, I, I think the basic plot is that the Enterprise is ferrying a circus troupe somewhere. Okay. <laughs> and it's, it's nowhere near as, as good as this. I think this annual is much better. Oh, it sounds better just from the outset. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you've got a couple of ginger Vulcans in it as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't think we've ever seen a red-headed Vulcan. I don't think we've seen anybody but a, you know, dark-haired, black-haired Vulcan, uh, you know, that uh, I can't recall ever seeing anybody like no, that. I no, I don't recall seeing a blonde Vulcan or anything like that. Maybe on Enterprise. I the closest know. thing we ever got was uh, was uh, uh, Denise Crosby as the, uh, the, the... Yeah, the blonde Romulan. Romulan, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It didn't look very convincing, did it? No. <laughs> okay. So if we have any final thoughts on it? Oh, I think we've covered it pretty well. Okay, well, the second annual, which again, as I mentioned, I originally wasn't going to cover until Chris said that he hadn't read it, so I felt the need to, to introduce him to it, was produced for Trek's 20th anniversary in 1986. Again, written by Mike W. Barr, with art by Dan Jurgens and Bob Smith. Uh, the letterer was Michelle Wolfman, the colorist was Robert Greenberger. No, Michelle Wolfman's the colorist, sorry. Augustine Mass was the letterer, Robert Greenberger was the editor. Again, yeah, like I mentioned, we've already covered this, so you can go back and listen to what Michael, my son Michael and I, thought about it on Hey Kids Comics. But I think it's a nice bookend to the first annual. Uh, the actual release date was July 26th. And it was called The Final Voyage. The cover is is pretty crap. Yeah, yeah. The crew are all saluting a really bad drawing of the Enterprise, <laughs> yeah. which just seems to be hovering above them. Yeah. It's like the Enterprise is docked on Earth. They're all walking out with the David Banner bags. Yeah. <laughs> apart from Spock, who also has his Vulcan layer. I think it's by Dennis Cowan and Ricardo Villagran. It's it's not very good. No, it's I not. don't understand. The splash page is much better. Yes, definitely. The splash page is just like a poster image. It's got the familiar trio, Kirk, Spock, McCoy. It's copied from a, a still. Spock's yeah. got the tricorder, Kirk's got the phaser, McCoy's got the communicator. You've got the familiar shot of uh, the back side of the Enterprise in orbit of a planet. On the planet, you've got a Telosian, and then you've got a Klingon cutting Captain Christopher Pike's throat. It's a much better cover than the cover. Right. I, I really I, wish they got Jurgens to draw the cover. Yeah, or why did they just didn't use that? Right. 
And why, did, <laughs> why they didn't look at that and look at the cover and go, hmm, I know which one would be better. Because <laughs> they could totally have made, you know, the credits fit on that. Right, definitely. For the, yeah. the cover. So, yeah, I, I really don't know why they did that. It seems um, very silly. Stardate 5995.7, the USS Kobayashi Maru receives a distress call that turns out to be a ruse, and they are destroyed by a Klingon cruiser. On Stardate 5996.5, the Enterprise receives a communique from Starfleet Command summoning them back to Earth. Their five-year mission is at an end. En route, they pick up Commander Will Decker from Starbase 10, the man who will be overseeing the refit of the USS Enterprise when they arrive at Space Dock. As they continue their voyage, Mr. Scott begins the age-old tradition of initiating the crew members who have just completed their first trek, but it all goes tragically wrong for Mr. Chekhov when he is attacked by a carnelian acid snake. Kirk has no time to ponder this development as a red alert summons him to the bridge. The Enterprise is surrounded by Klingon cruisers. Spock's analysis reveals that they are not even where they thought they were, and are in fact in orbit around Talos IV, the only planet in the galaxy still under General Order 7, a Starfleet death penalty. My dear, Captain Koloff and his Klingon crew have taken over Talos IV, and with it, the illusory powers of the inhabitants of the planet, the Talosians. Spock and Kirk, along with Decker and McCoy, beam down to locate the only two inhabitants of the planet, Captain Pike and Vina, and witness the Klingons torturing Pike. Spock actually shows rage and a Trek-style fistfight breaks out. However, being in possession of the Talosians' powers, the Klingons swiftly gain the upper hand. Kirk and Co are locked up with Vina, who explains that the Klingons learned of Talos IV via their spies, and quickly decided to make it their own. They slaughtered the Talosians, except for the few they needed to teach the Klingons their power. Koloth arrives and smugly monologues about his plan to take over the Enterprise, and then infiltrates the Federation. They start by planting illusions in the heads of the crew of various different horrible events, but with Kirk forcing him to relive the death of Edith Keeler is enough emotion to have Kirk break free, as really strong emotion negates Talosian control. With Kirk free, he manages to release the others, and McCoy and he return to the ship, thanks to Decker's wrist communicator, which the Klingons do not confiscate. Dr. McCoy concocts something to release the crew from the Klingon control, and they swiftly retake the ship, and, thanks to Kolos overconfidence, the entire planet. With the Talosians restored to their planet and the Klingons kept here to prevent them spreading what they know, the Enterprise returns to Earth and the crew prepare to go their separate ways, unsure what the future may hold. Uh, we've already mentioned how awfully awesome the splash page is, but it's got pretty much everything to to get a, a Trek fan where they hit him in the fields. I right. mean, the kids say. You've got the big three, you've got the Enterprise, you've got Klingons, you've got Talosians, you've got Captain Christopher Pike... This would have made an excellent splash patch. Oh, yeah. poster. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if they could have, you know, took, taken this and especially if, like, had somebody paint, you know, paint, do a painted version of it or something, yeah. That would have been really it, nice. It's absolutely fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. You know, when we get to the first page, we've got a, a female captain on the Kobayashi Maru, too. So, and I think you pointed out, didn't they say that a woman couldn't be captain in... Yeah. And Turnabout Intruder. <laughs> Isn't that the whole point of Turnabout Intruder? Well, this the is Janice after. Lester's, yeah, this is after Janice Lester's all, you know, won't let me be a captain. So, yeah. And I can't believe Mike W. Barr doesn't know that. Well, maybe they figure, well, after she went crazy like that, maybe we better let these women be captains. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of sexist, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, nobody listens, so it won't matter. <laughs> 
they, they flub up the, the dialogue in the, the captain's log. Did you notice? Uh, it does. It makes sense if you read it. Oh, yeah. The, the star dates? He mentions a message crew and well but no not the star dates he says we await word from starfleet command a message crucial to the crew and well-being of the enterprise the crew is tense and easy i wait response to my message to starfleet knowing their answer is crucial to the crew's well-being why is he putting that in his log twice i, I don't know <laughs> good good point <laughs> I, I think that the editor was asleep at the wheel though i think one of those um one of those captions should have been rewritten yeah. so that kirk wasn't repeating himself Right, that was that was Shatner. That was Shatner just recording the line again. He's like, yeah. there was a guy saying, um, um, uh, "Mr. Shatner, you you said sabotage. Uh, it's sabotage." <laughs> <laughs> um, Dan Jurgens does a great, great job with the artwork. Oh yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the first time I've seen him do something like this. It's got a much cleaner, more cartoony feel mm-hmm. than his work on Superman, which was roughly contemporaneous it would be a couple john Byrne had just rebooted superman when this came out so jurgens wasn't far away from from taking on superman but it's um again he does a good job of of capturing the characters without actually nailing the likenesses right and one thing he does that i I, better than than ross to me he he kind of his his characters although there's a couple spots where the likenesses come in stronger than others where you can tell he kind of used the still uh, to, to reference. He, the characters are more consistent from page to page, panel to panel. Uh, you can, he's kind of got a look for each character and it's, it's, I mean, there's a couple spots where it's off, but for the most part it flows better. Uh, it's like, he's kind of got a model for the characters that he's following, uh, which is, yeah, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the, what the artists, certainly Carrie Gamble, did on uh, Indiana Jones for Marvel. They're drawing the character, not the actor. Right. Though there are a couple of places, particularly the shot of um, Kirk on page four, where it's, it's, the, it's a very good likeness of William Shatner. Yes. For the most part, he's drawing a cartoony version of Captain Kirk. So, yes, he resembles Shatner. Right. But because he's doing a cartoony version, he doesn't have to nail the likeness on every panel. Right, you know, if if these guys had thought ahead like the Batman the Animated Series guys did, and just used the filmation model sheets, <laughs> create this story from filmation stock footage. Yeah, well, I mean, or they what they would have had a design for each character, and and the the actual filmation designs are really great. They I mean they capture the look of the actors pretty well. So I mean, if they just thought it, <laughs> that I don't think anybody really ever thought of that until the animated series. You know, when they because the you know the old Super Friends comic didn't try to use the Alex Toth designs, they just drew however. Uh, but if they you know that would have kind of went around all this trouble that these different artists have had over the years of figuring out how to draw Star Trek because Filmation already figured it out. <laughs> yeah, they should have, yeah, you're right. They should have just copied the animation designs. Yeah. I like that Scotty's got a tash. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice like, so nice bridge. That's, yeah. that's the first inclination you get that Bar's going to try and link the series to Star Trek the Motion Picture. Yeah. And he's graying a bit at the temples, isn't he? Yeah, which, you know, Doohan was kind of getting a little grayer toward the end when he had the uh, the Caesar cut, the, the George Clooney cut toward the end of the yeah. series. <laughs> so uh, one thing I think is interesting is, you know, Chekhov's like, I'll see you and uh, come visit me in Russia. And, and Sulu's like, well, come visit me at Mount, we'll go skiing in Mount Fuji. And 
It's like, wait a minute, it's Sulu from San Francisco. <laughs> maybe he just wants to take him skiing. Well, maybe. And, they, and, they, and that's just random. It might be, but they, and they bring that up later. You know, the, Yeah, the, I mean, the, I like the idea that they all don't know where they're going to be posted next. I mean, this goes back to what we were on about earlier. It, very realistically, these guys may never have served together again. Right. Right. They may have been posted in completely different places at completely far-flung parts of the galaxy. I mean, it's logical that Scotty stays on board the Enterprise overseeing the refit because he knows the ship. Yeah. But it, it makes sense that everyone thinks that they're going to get reassigned. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, as the series, the movies progressed, and I know, you know, Scott and, and Chris have brought this up on their show. As the series progressed, it becomes if you think about it, it's harder and harder to believe that they didn't break these guys up, you know, split them up more than they did. Well, that's that's what I was I was saying earlier on. If if they only used them when they had something for them to do. Right. Like, how much cooler would it have been to see Nichelle Nichols again as a horror in Star Trek 3, helping them steal the Enterprise, if she hadn't been in two? Right, yeah. How would it have been to see Takai in charge of the Excelsior in 6 if he hadn't been in 5? Because let's right. face it, he doesn't do anything in 5. No, he just gapes and, you know, <laughs> it's just kind of, yeah, and gets mesmerized easily by Cyborg, you know. Iris <laughs> is himself, like most everybody else in that film. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing uh, we brought up, you know, they're, they're talking about back pay. Uh, they're Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are talking about back pay, so that brings up the age-old question – do they have money in the in the classic series time? I know in Next Generation time they they don't have money, but do they have it here? You know, I mean, it's it, it maybe it's credits and who knows, but it it's, it certainly seems like they're calculating actual money. Yeah. Which yeah. didn't make any sense to me, because, yeah, you've got the line in Trek 4 where Kirk says they're still using money, which, like you say, it could be he, they're still using paper money. Right. Everything's now credit chips or debit cards or whatever, because we're almost at that point now. I very rarely have cash on me. Me too. I pay everything with a debit card. Yeah. I, don't have, I don't have cash at all. Right. So we're almost at that point now. Yeah. But with instantaneous banking, they'd still be being paid, wouldn't they? Yeah, I would think. Because, well, well, you know, Trouble with Tribbles, who goes shopping with Chekhov? Right. Right. How is she paying for that then if they've not been paid? So for five years, the salary's just been paid into the bank and they've not seen a penny of it. I guess that doesn't make it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, it's a fun little scene and get some talking, but it, it, it really doesn't it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, Wolf in the Fold, who's paying for all them drinks? Right. Because <laughs> apparently, you know, Scotty got pretty snookered because he didn't even. Yeah. <laughs> so it, no, it, it yeah, like you say, it's not a scene that makes any sense. Yeah. In the in the context of the of what we know of Star Trek, and you'd probably been the best leaving it alone. Right. I did like the next page where the Will Decker and Commodore Stocker greet Kirk at Starbase Ten, and they're wearing the motion picture uniforms. Right, right. And Stocker's got the really cool Admiral uniform, the best, the only good uniform from Star Trek: The Motion Picture. <laughs> The, yeah. the Admiral it was, I think it was on Mission Log that mentioned that Kirk's short sleeve one looks like he's just come off the tennis courts. <laughs> which was just hysterical, because it does. It looks like he's just finished a game with Federer. But yeah, yeah so it, it's yeah. nice. I mean, my thing here, I mean, you got the note, Commodore Stocker. <laughs> I thought this was too many callbacks. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, with Commodore Stalker, I mean, they were taking him to Starbase 10. But the moron went across the Romulan neutral zone. I mean, yes. and, and almost caused a like interstellar incident. And, I mean, he was, you know, they portrayed him as like the worst pencil pusher that that ever existed in that. I mean, he you know, he, he apologized at the end and it, it showed how good of a Captain Kirk was and and everything. And that's I, that's one of my favorite episodes. That's a great episode. But it it uh to the fact that this guy got to take command when he got there <laughs> tells me that there's he must have had some family up higher in Starfleet or something. <laughs> yeah, I, pre- I presume so. He's got photos of somebody in a compromising position with a, a squid lady. Yeah. And he doesn't want that getting out. There's another line here that's quite curious. Will Decker says, I'm a soldier, Captain. And how many times has it skirted that line between, well, is Starfleet military or is it not? I come firmly down on the side that it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It definitely in Kirk's time, it definitely was. Yeah. There's, there's too much. Too much of the iconography is the Navy in space. Right. Right. I think a lot of that's Roddenberry's, uh, his changing view is changing life view, worldview, and and uh, I think that's him. I think he kind of over the years in his head changed what he thought Star Trek was, and that's why uh, you know the motion picture has a feel to it. Uh, it's very much like Next Generation, especially when it first started. Of course, partially that's because they recycled the plots from Star Trek Phase Two that they didn't yeah. get to use. Uh, but that's a different. That 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 kind of you know humanity has 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 purged a lot of its unsavoriness uh, in in time. And I mean, there was some of that in 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 the original Trek, but you you know you definitely got more of the feel that uh, I, I think he moved away from the Horatio Hornblower, you know, two fisted you know uh, hero type of Kirk. And uh, but yeah, I think definitely the original Trek. And even into the movies, with obviously Star Trek II being a submarine film, uh, basically. Uh, Balance of Terror. Yeah, and Balance of Terror being a submarine film. Yeah, both of those uh, are, are submarine movies in space. And, uh, you know, it's definitely a military type. It's a, it's a military organization. I mean, people can argue back and forth. But in the original Trek timeline, I, can, I don't see how you can how you can argue it's not, but... You know, people do, but... <laughs> people do. <laughs> people will argue the colour of the grass on the floor. That's right. On the internet. That's what it's for. That's what it's for, right. Uh, lovely shot, lovely over-the-head shot of the bridge on the top of page. Oh, this comic doesn't have page numbers, I hate you. <laughs> on the top of the next page, right? there's right. a lovely overhead shot, which very reminiscent of a shot from the show. Mm-hmm, Yeah. It's it's kind of like that. It's almost it's similar to that shot you when you first get into the cage when they go inside the dome in the in the saucer mm. and you see the bridge. So yeah, it's nice. Yeah. I, the 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 exchange between Uhura and Decker about the uh, are these the new uniforms and Decker's like, well, they're trying them out, and she's like, well, put a vote in for yes for me, and and Scotty's like, you know what? Why do you want to wear pajamas? <laughs> And she's like, you've even worn a miniskirt for the past five years. <laughs> and Scotty's like flustered. Yeah. But, well, again, they discussed this on Mission Love. They're not actually miniskirts. They're called something like scants or skanks. Maybe not skank. I hope not. Uh, something like that. The skirts with a short underneath. Right. So they, they're, they're not actually miniskirts when you want to get really pedantic about it. But, yeah, they're not terribly practical. 
I think calling those shorts underneath a little, a little, yeah, a little, uh, a little generous. I mean, there's underwear that's bigger than those things. Which, yeah. Not that we're complaining yeah. as red-blooded men. No, 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 no. I mean, if I'm going to be trapped on a starship, I want my girls wearing miniskirts. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, obviously, and what's really interesting is in the cage and where No Man's Gone before, they had pants. The women yeah. had pants. They, they, their uniforms weren't really any different than the men's, and uh, that was a that was a series change. And I think early, even in the early episodes, you could occasionally see a woman in pants uh, walking around. But yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, it's kind of interesting that they got less progressive. <laughs> well, they had to make some concessions to get the show on the air. Well, that's true. So show a little leg, you know. So yeah, um, <laughs> is this a holodeck? I think it is, and that that, they're doing the initiation ceremony on. Yeah, and that's from um, the animated series. There was an episode, at least one episode, of the animated series where they have uh, an early holodeck, and uh, so I guess they can have. have since this came after this story would have taken place after the animated series, then you can say that uh, they had installed it, I guess, <laughs> by, th- by this point. So, and they even said they picked up hollow tapes on uh, Starbase 10. So, you know. So what, it's what, very definitely a, a prototype holodeck. Mm hmm. Yeah. Okay, because uh, Barr also had the Enterprise saucer section detach in an issue of the comic well before the next generation. Right. Right, yeah, and, and uh, I think Byrne did that in one of the recent. Uh, in, yeah, he did in one of the, the yeah, photo novels. one of the books. recent photo novels. Yeah, yeah. yes, he did. So lovely shot of the Enterprise with the three, the three Klingon cruisers around it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, Jurgens does a great job drawing the ship, which we know from these the ships because we know from these Star Trek comics. Wow, some some guys just have trouble <laughs> drawing. Yeah, it is. it's one of those things, isn't it? It's not just the likenesses. You've got to be able to do the tech. Right. And if you're, if the Enterprise doesn't look like the Enterprise, then you're already on a hide into nothing. Right. He does he does do a very good job with his, his drawing of the ships. I don't know how much of this was traced. It's entirely possible. But either way, he does a great job with them. Yeah, it's like, you know, you kind of wonder, he does such a good job, you wonder if he didn't have some of the, the AMT models sitting around or, <laughs> or something uh, which I'm, I'm pretty sure Jurgens was a was a Trek fan. It seems like I've read that. Uh, so he he could have possibly had, you know, some some uh, you know either some diecast models or the plastic models or something because the the Klingon ships in particular look dead on. I mean, the Enterprise there's enough reference material. I think you should be able to get it right, but you know the Klingon ships not necessarily. But uh, yeah, but, if you just photograph one of those AMC kits from different angles, right. Yeah, I probably would have given him what he needed. Did you think it was really weird to see Decker on the bridge of the TV Enterprise in his motion picture <laughs> uniform? Yeah, that that's really... It's one of these things that doesn't belong, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it really just shows, I mean, that, that stark gray against the color of the bridge, you know, which, you know, of course, all the color will be sucked out of the bridge in the motion picture uh, and, and, and then brought back in subsequent movies, but... Uh, yeah, it's definitely it's 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 definitely strange that and it seems you know it's kind of weird. It almost feels like uh, Kirk and company have been on a very very deep space mission where they never stopped at a star base <laughs> to pick up new uniforms. You know, you think they you know, obviously he mentions it's a trial thing, but both him and Stalker have it on. So without and that most li- of the people on Starbase Ten as well. Yeah, without that line most of, of the background personnel. Yeah, without that line of dialogue, you would assume that 
hey, Starfleet switched over to this. You guys have been gone for five years. This is what happened while you were gone, which is weird because they obviously stopped at different star bases over time. And, and Well, shipping takes time in space, doesn't it? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to beam them out, though. They want to actually send them because you'll mess the lining of the suits up and all of that. They've actually got to send them with a seamstress so they get measured up properly. Yeah. Cyrano Jones had a ship had a ship full of them, <laughs> but the triples ate them. I don't know. <laughs> So it's taking time to swap everyone over. And then we get uh, a reappearance by yours and my favourite Klingon. Oh, Captain Koloff. My dear Captain Koloff. Right, William Campbell, which I like William Campbell as Trelane. Brilliant as Trelane. Yeah, but he was the the Trek's most ineffective Klingon. Uh, Yeah, I... I think I've said before, he just, he, he came across as really effeminate to me for a Klingon. He does, yeah. He's, I don't think he got the memo. They didn't, and it didn't help. They didn't do the full makeup on him. They didn't give him the kind of bronzed skin as Koloth. Uh, he didn't, he just had the beard, uh, he, you know, and then the, the, he had this dark hair, which here he's got curly brown hair, which is weird. It doesn't Maybe look, they didn't have um, Campbell's likeness right. Might be, might be, and and uh, but you know I would have much if it was Kang or Kor, especially Kang, you know Michael Ansara, that would have been a lot. I guess that kind of would have undid what they did in Day of the Dove, so maybe not using Kang would have. I uh, know, but I I would have bought him being this ruthless more than Koloff. Me too. I don't like Koloff stabbing Talosians. Me neither. I mean, if they had, we talked about on Supermates, we talked about the Spider-Man movie. The Spider-Man TV pilot and Michael Pataki was in it as Captain Barbera, and he was Koloth's second in command in Trouble with Tribbles, and yeah. he was a much better Klingon than Koloth. <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that, that's all. Oh, mean, we can get to this at the end, but that's one of my big problems with this entire issue is that the, the Klingons that they would develop into. It didn't really seem like they would just slaughter a bunch of Talosians just because they could. It's not like these guys were giving them a fight, was it? Right, right. I mean, this 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 definitely doesn't really work with the the. And this is just a year before Next Generation debuted, and we would see a whole other look at Klingons. You know that these these Klingons are just nothing but rat bastards. I mean, there's there's no way about it. Yeah. You know, there's there's no redeeming quality about them at all. There's no. Their honor means nothing. I mean, they're just evil. And, yeah. and I don't know if we ever saw the Klingon. was honorable, wasn't he, in Errant of Mercy? Right, right. And even Kang, you know, he saw the, you know, you know, as, as, as I mean, you definitely got the idea that Kang was, was a fairly ruthless individual. But even then he figured, you know, he realized when the, you know, he had some redeeming qualities about him beyond the fact that Michael Ansar is just a really good actor. But, <laughs> but uh you know it uh yeah this this seems a little that's my that'd be my one complaint too the klingons are a little over the top uh in their portrayal as the bad guys you know that's a little it's it's a little uh trek usually wasn't that quite on the nose with their their enemies really you know uh, classic trek wasn't and then of course later they weren't either but uh yeah and especially represented by koloth it just doesn't I mean, maybe this was Bar's attempt to redeem him. Maybe, yeah. But having him, you know, gut a bunch of butt-headed aliens that don't really fight back doesn't really redeem him. It just makes him an asshole. Right, right, yeah. I I like when they get to the the planet, and as soon as... I do like when when Spock 
I don't know who Scock is, when Spock sees them torturing, uh, almost said Picard, torturing Pike, um, he just, you know, he gets, like you said in your synopsis, he actually gets angry. And then the Trek fight breaks out, you know, which is nice that Barr remembered, hey, classic Star Trek, they always had a fight, you know. Yeah, there's uh, a fist fight in there somewhere. Yeah, there's got to be one. And you even get Kirk, like, hanging on to the the uh, the sea the uh, doorway and kicking somebody, you know, which is <laughs> which is nice. I did I liked as well that Burr tied that into why Spock goes back to Vulcan for the coroner. Right, seeing Captain Pike being mistreated like that shows him he's not as in control of his emotions as he perhaps should be. Right, right. So it, it's a brilliant moment, but it's also steeped in character. Yeah, and uh, you know when uh, when we get to. Uh, the part where we're jumping ahead a bit, but when we get to the part where uh, they they're in spot that they use the Telosian power to get in Spock's mind and, and, and mess with his, uh, you know, show him his fears and everything. And that's another reason. I mean, that that's, uh, you know, Bar does a good job of, of pushing the characters toward their, their motion picture fate <laughs> as, mm. as this goes along. But, uh, you know, when we see Vina, of course, we we meet. They run into Vina, and uh, she's captured. They surprisingly, they kind of tone down her look. Uh, she's not quite as, not to be mean, but quite as hideous looking as she was, <laughs> you know, in the in the actual episode that we saw at the end. I mean, mm. it's, uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. You would think they would have this would have chance to. I mean, I know nowadays it would be like completely gruesome, but uh, you know, even at this time, they they it was kind of tame. Uh, for what they, you know, because obviously they showed it on TV in the 60s, so I think it was pretty fair game to, to depict it as was, but they, she doesn't, other than having a hunchback and a scar across her face, she doesn't she doesn't really seem that misshapen as she did in the show. But No, and the Jurgens doesn't quite capture Susan Oliver's likeness, or Jeffrey Hunter's really. No. But no. again, well, they must have had Hunter's likeness, because... Uh, Dave Ross did a pretty good job of it in the last annual. Right, right. Maybe he's I mean, we know the, who he's supposed to be, don't we? Yeah, maybe he's drawing the uh, the guy that played uh, what was it? What was his name that played uh, Pike in the chair? It wasn't Hunter. It was uh, one of the guys that played. Oh, the, yeah, Kenny, I know who you mean Kenny. I think some Kenny or Sean Kenny. Sean Kenny. Yeah, yeah. He's maybe he's doing him. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no prize explanation accepted. When they show the Klingon, I thought it was kind of a nice, subtle moment. They show the Klingon, the montage of how they took over. Uh, you get a page that shows uh, uh, Pike and, and Vina skiing and, you know, them looking young and, and pretty and everything. And then you see the, the Klingon's, like, drowning a Telosian, and one's, like, running one through with his dagger. And uh, it's like that's, you know, they don't go out and say they kind of – say that they, the the dialogue makes you think more that they just kind of tortured them, but obviously they're killing some of them here, you know, and it, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting that they, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's not over the top gory, but it's just kind of, it's very effective because you see that and you're like, oh man, yes. It's they, very Frank Miller, isn't it? The blade yeah. doesn't pierce the cloth. Right, right, yeah. They probably couldn't have got away with that back then. So no, but yeah, they, they slaughter the Telosians. Yeah, yeah which I mean, can't have been a, a a major conquest for the great and mighty Klingon Empire. I wouldn't imagine no. And it's kind of neat, you know, that the whole idea that the Telosians wouldn't have any defense against Klingons because they're so 
angry. You know, they're so they're so uh, fueled by their their base emotions. You know, their rage and and anger and and uh, you know, obviously they established that in the cage. That's how Pike was able to you know to 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 get around a lot of their their tricks. You know, and, and their illusions. So. It was mm. it was a nice uh, you know you drop the Klingons in that environment and bad stuff's going to happen. <laughs> and then we we get the um, the the Klingons using their illusionary power to torture the crew. Of them all, I think Scotty's was rather weak. Yeah, yeah. Um, Uhura's the basically burning her face off. Yeah, which um, there was an episode yeah. where somebody. What was that episode where? Was it the one with the? The, I'm trying to remember which one it was where they made her look old in the mirror. And was it the the children shall lead maybe? And the, you know, with the uh, oh, gorgon or something with the gorgon. Yeah, it may have been because I have to confess I, I've not watched that one a lot. No, I haven't either. It's pretty bad. That that, yes. that that episode's disturbing all the way around between the attorney, bad actor attorney, and and the idea that the kids killed their parents and all that. I mean, it's just. Yeah, but then we have a good laugh about that at the end. Yeah, it's chuckle, chuckle. Oh, kids, have a good laugh. We will laugh at the fact that you're crying over the fact you killed your parents. Excellent. Yeah, so... Not sure what the message of that one was. I don't either. I, I think that was... That's a, you know, third season's got a bad rap, but occasionally it, it earns it, you know? <laughs> yes, very, very occasionally. Yeah, Mr. Sulu's been... Um, Willie's been beaten... Right, essentially, like being thrown in an internment camp in World War Two, isn't he? Yeah, which is is interesting because George Takai was actually, you know, for a time spent time as a young, very young boy in one of those camps, and uh, he's, you know, he's been one of the uh, people that have made sure that that's not been forgotten. And I think there's a museum and and uh, out in California that he's supported and everything else. So, uh, you know, that's it, I don't know if Bard knew that. I'm assuming he did, but, uh, you know, I think there's even a bit on, uh, the Star Trek DVD sets there's, you know, they catch up with all the actors and, uh, the Takai part is a, a good chunk of it's about that. So, mm. uh, so it's uh, kind of interesting that he would, uh, that he would work that into Sulu's character, especially since yeah. Sulu obviously wasn't, <laughs> wasn't alive yeah. back in the forties. <laughs> oh, maybe he's got ancestors that were, maybe right. that's what they're, they're playing yeah. with. Well, Everybody I'll- else is fine with Spock and his mum. And he yeah. sees his mum as a Vulcan, and McCoy sees his daughter dying, and Decker sees his dad, or the, what's his name of his dad? The crew, yeah. The... Yeah, he's living under the legacy of his dad, who was obviously the commander in, in the Doomsday Machine. Scotty's is the one that doesn't work. Scotty's just trapped in, a, in engineering as, as a destruct countdown going on. I think Scotty should have been the fact that he freaked out over the fact that they caught his missing finger on camera. <laughs> <laughs> No, you can't do it. You can't show my hand. <laughs> no, yeah, so they they all work quite well, don't they? Yeah, yeah, especially with the Kirk's. exception of Scotty's. Yeah, the one with Kirk's the gut punch, especially in the time before City on the Edge of Forever was was so universally touted as the Trek episode. You know, I mean, uh, it. You know, nowadays it's it's so omnipresent as Trek's finest hour. You know that. You know, it, it would almost—I I don't want to say it—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's an easy thing to go to, but I think here, and obviously, Trek fandom probably had already decided that years ago, at, you know, when this was published. But it wasn't 
you know, we weren't hit over the head with it as much. So the fact that he went there uh, was, was a nice touch. And, you know, if only, and I'll throw this in, I know I shouldn't, but Star Trek Generations would have worked a whole lot better if in that cabin when Picard went and saw Kirk, if Joan Collins had been in that cabin. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I Yeah, it, instead of... Some we never don't care about. Yeah, some woman we never heard of, and they they could have made it Carol Marcus, and it would have made more sense. Yeah, I'd have even accepted Miramani. Yes, thank you. Yes, Miramani, yes. Cause, yeah. Miramani and the baby that she died with, that would have worked perfectly well if they couldn't get Joan Collins. Right. But, oh, Antonio, who the fuck's Antonio, and why do I care? <laughs> right, yeah. That's my one PG-13 swerve for the episode. <laughs> you can use it once. <laughs> yeah, I'm allowed to say it once in a PG-13, apparently. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like that that, you know, enraged Kirk enough to break free of the illusion. He beats the crud out of that Klingon, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's, there's blood splatter all over the camera. Yeah. <laughs> blood spatter everywhere. They should call him Dexter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, that's what uh, that's what breaks him, breaks him free, so... Uh, you know, then they get aboard the ship, and, and uh, of course, uh, Bones has to use the uh, patented make an antidote <laughs> and pipe it through the ventilation system trick. <laughs> That's what Bones does. Right. That's almost like, you know, Data modulating a deflector shield to do something on the next generation. <laughs> it's the answer for everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's double talk the switch back through the double talk generators, and that will do. <sighs> <sighs> I do kind of like on the page before how Decker, Decker's communicator still works because he's got the fancy wrist communicator from the, the next generation. They didn't know to take it away from him. You know, they thought he yeah, could... I thought that was quite clever. They just thought it was like a watch or something. Right, yeah. So that was... Uh, like... yeah, that was yeah, that was an interesting idea. And he's also wearing the wraparound tunic as well that they would wear when they go on away missions in the motion picture. Right, and the one that uh, McCoy and Spock swap on the <laughs> at the end of the movie. When yeah. <laughs> one's wearing one... Like one's wearing, Spock's wearing orange, and they cut to Kirk, and then when it goes back, he's wearing green, and both. <laughs> Oops. Oops. <laughs> They're swapping coats just to screw around with Kirk. Well, speaking of oops, you spotted a continuity goof here. Yeah, Kirk hands uh, Decker a uh, disruptor, a Klingon disruptor, and he blasts through their cage, and then when Spock and him are on the surface, uh, he's. Uh, he says, "I feel I feel better with the phaser in my hand when they're getting ready to attack." And he said, "A weapon, Mister Decker, is of little use unless wielded efficiently." Which I don't even know if that's quite the word. That's such a word. Yeah, I think he made that up. But uh, <laughs> Decker's like, "Yes, sir." So the thing is, though, Jurgens draws them holding phasers. Spock's definitely got a phaser, and what Decker has seems to be a phaser as well. It's not shaped like a a Klingon disruptor, which is very unique with that kind of rounded, curved handle and everything. So uh, there was a, definitely a continuity gaffe there that, that didn't match the dialogue. So, I mean, they could have just said that they got their phasers back at that point. If they just took it, if they just taken out um, Decker's uh, dialogue right there about having a phaser in his hand, it, he would have never noticed because you would assume they just got him back. You know? Mm. Oh, well. Uh, the The ending... The, well, they blow up the Klingon ships. That was like in two tiny panels. <laughs> it's like a yes. really one tiny I panel. I there's another goof there as well. They say fire photon torpedoes, but they show phasers. 
Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, that's right. And, it, yeah, a photon torpedo would have taken them out quicker, but, yeah, they show them, show them firing phasers, right? That's, that's another, yep, yep. I, that, I felt like the ending was a bit rushed, you know. I, I think, uh, I don't know if that's Jurgen. I don't know how they did this one, if that was, if they did it Marvel style or full script style or, or you know, this was Barr's pacing or Jurgen's pacing, but that's really my only real gripe about the artwork in this one is that the ending's a little, you know, you could have done with a either a half, a half page or a full page page splash of those Klingon ships going boom. You know? Yeah, an, ex, an extra page of battle wouldn't have gone amiss. No, no. Because it, it does seem like four panels and they're wiped out. And the vo- they, like you said, they have all very small panels. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, then you get to the uh, the part where, you know, they're, they're back on the bridge and, and Kirk's talking to the Telosian leader and, you know, Pike and Diener are okay. And, and now the Klingons are forced to live on a in a pastoral paradise. <laughs> Yeah, which, which of course, keeping cool off the undermines what will happen in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, well, I think but, they say yeah. something about uh, until we purge their minds of our world. So maybe they purge his mind and then drop him back off on... <laughs> maybe maybe they pull a Professor X and just mind-wipe them. Yeah, there you go. We're all okay with this because they're the bad guys. Yeah, that's right, and they're very bad in this one, obviously. Yeah, well, they deserved it because they just went around slaughtering those Portalosians. That's right, right. Uh, you know, then Kirk, of course, Kirk gets to, you know, tell Decker, Decker's all, you know, I'm going to quit because, you know, I can't get out from under my father's shadow. And, and Kirk's like, well, no, that's why you, you know, you, you're your own man, you know, stick with it and, and just, you know, stay with the ship and I'll come by and take it away from you in a year or two. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you, you do what you're doing and then I'll come, I'll swagger up to you and be a complete asshole and steal it from under you. <laughs> Don't know, she's bald, didn't she? Yeah. Pretty bald girl. Yeah, that's right. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah and then we get a, a lovely final goodbye to everybody. Yeah. Kirk takes one last look around the bridge and then leaves, because obviously at this point, he didn't know that he'd be coming back. And he certainly yeah. wouldn't be coming back to this bridge. No, he takes the plaque off the wall with the ship the side view and the top view of the ship, which I thought was neat. And he tucks it under his arm and go- goes into turbo lift and is gone, which is, I thought that was nice that he took something to, to remember it by, you know, and, and, uh, it'd be interesting to see if it's like, you know, if, if too bad we didn't know this or it'd be nice to have seen it hanging up in his, uh, his apartment or whatever in Star Trek three, you know, <laughs> yeah, have it two, on the wall in three or something, two, two or have him bring it back in the motion picture. Yeah, and hang it back up. Yeah, hang it back on the wall. That would have been a nice touch as well. Uh, I mean, we I talked at length about this one before. What did you think of it? I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I thought that you know, it, I think it feels like a series finale that you would get nowadays. Um, like if you know, I, I don't know if in the '60s if they had done a final episode and knew they were going to do a final episode, uh, if they would have done something. This referential, you know, you said the the first annual was referential. This is very referential, you know, bringing things full circle with the cage and making sure the Klingons are in it, and and uh, and making sure Decker is, and of course, and now you know Decker being in it and, and the TMP elements to to bridge the gap. But even if it had been produced then, uh, you know, I don't know if they would have done that. I mean, most series, if they most series didn't, they just they ended just like Star Trek did. They 
they filmed, you got canceled, you finish up the episodes you've got to do, and you got the scripts handy, and you just don't worry about wrapping everything up, uh, with few exceptions like, you know, The Fugitive or something, which they, was meant to end, obviously. Uh, but, you know, this is the type of uh, finale that you would like the series to have had. Uh, and for the most part, I, I you know, I, I really liked it. I mean, there were a few things in it that, you know, popped out at us, but overall it's, you know, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice send off. And I, I really can't think of what I would do differently. I mean, I don't really know, uh, of anything mm. I could come it's, up with. It's very, better. it's very reminiscent of all good things. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That going back to the beginning and bringing in lots of elements from the first episode and paying them off at the end. I, I know Ron Moore is a comics fan or reader. I can't help but wonder if subconsciously there was a little bit of that in it when he, he came up with all good things. Well, good point. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, because, you know, you go back to Encounter at Farpoint and that one and Q. And so this one, you go back to the Colosians and... And the and Pike and Vina, and so yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good point, yeah, because they definitely they definitely got a final episode, obviously. Uh, yeah, like like you, I think if they'd made a final episode in 1971, if they've actually got to do you know five years, I don't think it would have been as self-referential as this. I like to say whether they would have even done a final episode. I don't know because if they had, we may not have got films. Right. So who knows? But certainly, I don't think that this story has been retold anywhere else. I don't think they've ever done a final mission, Kirk's final five-year mission in the novels that I know of. They've done novels set in between right. the end of the five-year mission and Star Trek The Motion Picture, and then novels in the second five-year mission after The Motion Picture. Right. But I don't think they've ever done this story. So this one... I think has has been left untouched. But if anyone listening knows otherwise, you can get in touch and, and let us know on HeyKidsComics at VirginMedia.com because I'm still using my old email. Well, you know, it's it's kind of funny because when I it was years probably when I got the that copy of the Star Trek Encyclopedia, I didn't realize that the motion picture was supposed to have been only what like two years after. Yeah, the, Kirk says two and a half years in uh, as an admiral. Okay, well, see, I, I guess I glossed over that line, <laughs> and uh, and the the fact that uh, you know I, I just assumed that it was actually like the ten years that it actually was in real time, and uh, so when I see all these things that you know put it at a time closer to the series, and then there's quite a few years in between two and and uh, I mean between TMP and Star Trek Two, uh, you know, it took me a while to figure out. Okay, well, there. There is enough time. <coughs> Excuse me. There is enough time for another five-year mission and a bunch of time in between that. But I do like that Bones is like, "Are you crazy taking a desk job?" <laughs> yeah, he's already setting up that he's not happy with him. Right, right. And and it's kind of funny because Kirk takes a desk job twice, which is kind of odd that he would. <laughs> yeah, that he wouldn't learn twice. Right, seems a bit stupid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, does that wrap it up? I think it does. Well, thank you very much, Chris. I enjoyed that. Well, thanks for having me. It's not a problem. Do you want to tell the lovely people where they can find you? Oh, sure, yeah. You can, uh, if you feel froggy, you can find me and my wife, Cindy, at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or you can uh, check me out on the Power Records episodes of the Fire and Water podcast. And this is bad, but I believe that you can find, you can go to the Aquaman Shrine, 
uh, .net, that's one place you can go, or firestormfan.com, or fireandwater.blogspot.com, uh, <laughs> fire I believe. I could be wrong about that because I usually don't go in that way. So. <laughs> but you can find it. You, you'll, you'll find it. Or you go to iTunes and you can find it there. So. Right, well, thank you very much. Uh, but I've got no idea what will be next because these just go as they come. And I've got a couple recorded, so I may release them out of sequence. Who knows? So you'll just have to tune in next time and see what we do. Many thanks to Chris Franklin for joining me. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.